You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hello, everybody. Are you ready to rock the house? Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. It might seem a little strange. What do they call it anyway? Karateoke? Karaoke. What is karaoke? It's a rush like you wouldn't believe. It's like jumping out of an airplane. It's a way of life. The cha-cha. Some life. Hey, hey, uh, It may seem a little foolish. I like about you. Are you going to sing? Me? I'd be way too nervous. Ah! Okay! But for six complete strangers... It's a real path to the real meaning of the real truth. Karaoke is going to set them free. You can enter this little contest of ours? No, the real big money's up in Omaha this Saturday. Five grand. For these two, it's about love. How old are you anyhow? Probably old enough for a lot of things. I don't want to interrupt if you two are bonding. Do you know him? Why, of course I know him. He's your father. And she'll tease you. For these two, it's about following your heart. I'm going to be the only major thing that has ever happened to you in your life. I am not an underachiever. I'm not. The sex was great. It was almost like being with a girl. Seriously. For these two, it's about living on the edge. You don't know how to drive? No, I don't know how to drive. Hollywood Pictures invites you. Hi. Grab a mic. Baby, let's no way. And make your dreams Mama come true. Me. Maria Bello, Andre Brower, Paul Giamatti, Huey Lewis, Academy Award winner Gwyneth Paltrow, Scott Speedman. I love it Duets. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Emily Travia. I don't believe in mayonnaise. Also back in the booth is Mr. Morris Brustinsky. Hello, it's me. I'm in the booth with Mike and Emily. We're gonna talk about the film duets. Was it good or one we should forget? Wow. Give me a minute to download that app where I can pull up a lighter on my phone and wave it back and forth. <laughs> we conclude Musical Month with a look at Bruce Paltrow's Duets. Released in the year 2000, the film tells the overlapping stories of three couples who are all involved in the cutthroat world of karaoke. 
That may sound like we're in for a wild parody along the lines of Dodgeball or something like that, but the film is actually more of a poignant slice-of-life tale about love, loss, and life. And if that sounded cheesy as hell, buckle up. Emily, I know you're a huge Gwyneth Paltrow fan, so I have to ask, when was the first time you saw duets? Probably theatrically, I imagine. And how many times have you seen it so far? So here's the shocking thing. Because the truth is, I am a huge fan of karaoke. I love karaoke. I can't sing, but I am a damn good karaokeist because it's not just about singing. It's about the performance, if you will. Uh, and so had I known that duets was, was really about karaoke, sometime in the past 21 years, I would have seen it. But instead, I, it, I missed it. It came out probably right between high school and college. Uh, and I realized watching it that why the songs were so familiar, because I had a roommate who had the soundtrack and would play it all the time. But I did not watch this movie until one week ago. And is my life different now? Of course it is. And Morris, how about you? I watched this a week ago for the show. I do remember seeing at my old video library, I don't know when would it have been, maybe 2001, 2002, they had a poster for it and they had, or, or one of those cardboard cutout things. And at the time I thought, yeah, this looks like it's going to be one of those cheesy, isn't life great type of movies. And I, it had no indication from the poster that this is going to be as dark as it sometimes got. Yeah, I had no real interest in it at the time. So I was wondering what it was going to feel like when I watched it till now. And I will look, I will start off by saying this is no died laughing. I do have some problems with this film. I like the idea of it. And, okay, so maybe one spot I'll say, if this film had been purely about Paul Giamatti and Andre Brower's relationship, this would have been absolutely terrific film. I think there are issues with the other two relationships in the film, but we can get to that as we go further on down. Yeah, if this had just been, like, Rat Race as a karaoke movie, could have been something different, too. It, this is This movie... Uh, has a lot to figure out about itself, is where I'm going to say. I think I saw the trailer for this and said, oh my god, that looks like shit. <laughs> Maybe Andrea was watching it on TV one day and I came in and I didn't know what it was. And I saw Paul Giamatti and I'm like, okay, whatever Paul Giamatti is in... I will watch. Sometimes I won't go out of my way to watch something. Like, I still haven't seen Sideways, which a lot of people tell me is good. The Illusionist, I'm like, okay, fuck yeah, Paul Giamatti's in this, I'll do that. You know, there's so many things. And then you get to, like, Amazing Spider-Man 2. He is the best thing in Amazing Spider-Man 2, by far. I want the movie of him. I want Rhino. I don't even need Spider-Man in it. I just want Rhino. With that crazy accent he's doing. You'll fight me! You'll fight me now! Uh, on behalf of the five people in New York City and real rhinos everywhere, I ask you to put your mechanized paws in the air. Never! I just so I kill you. I destroy you. You want me to come down there so you can kill me? Yes! I'll be right there. He just sounds like a hungry hippo in the movie, and I'm okay with that. But anyway, I sat down and started watching this movie having no idea what it was, and eventually figured it out and i was like you know what i'm okay with this movie so much so that i can't remember i think we found it at like a bargain bin at walmart or something and picked it up and i've watched it this is probably when i watched it again for the show yesterday was probably like my eighth or ninth time watching the film i actually really dig this movie and i wanted to know the story behind it and thus this episode was born you know what this film has something in common with 
a peripheral film that you discussed in last week's program, the story of several people taking a road journey to compete in a competition that you ultimately sort of think, why? Blues Brothers 2000. I can kind of see that. The journey aspect of it is is interesting because, again, like it, this is a concept that could have gone so many different ways. And the way it goes is, is so odd because it is still going three completely different directions. And I could see why, because it it's a weird one for a first watch. Um, and I watched it twice. I watched it and then I watched it with the commentary a little bit, you know, not quite as intensely. And I feel like it's one where every time you watch it, you might get a different movie out of it. It is, it is strange. It is much weirder than I expected it to be. How well do you think this holds up? as a Robert Altman-esque type of film, that sort of thing, the multiple stories, and they all come together at the end. I'm actually a sucker for a good Robert Altman-esque film. One of my favorite Jonathan Demme movies is one that I feel doesn't get talked about nearly enough, and that's Citizens Band, a.k.a. Handle With Care. I love that, and I love the way that it's put together. I love all the actors in it. And this kind of reminds me of that, insofar as like having these little stories that all converge towards the end of it. And it's also interesting finding the relationships between these. I think that duets, for me, actually does Altman a little bit better than some Altman. I remember I really liked Shortcuts the first time I saw it. I wasn't so hot on it, maybe like the second or third time that I saw it. And then some Altmans I've just kind of stayed away from because I'm like, yeah, I don't want to see Lake Wobegon at all. I definitely am picking up that Altman vibe you're talking about. And that's where I think part of the limitations are. This is one of those movies that I watch and I think, you're right, it should have either been one of these three stories or seven more stories. And it to have been more quirky, more kind of more entertaining, I guess, or focus on a story that you can actually develop in 90 minutes and get deep into. Because I, I agree. I think that the Paul Giamatti, Andre Brower is by far the predominant one that you leave remembering because it's so much more dramatic. It's also the two best actors in the movie. And it makes the other two suffer much more because then they're on totally different wavelengths in at, at times from where they were to start. And if it had been more of a kind of, you know, 30 person cast and everybody com- comes in and out. And again, I'm thinking Rat Race just because I watched it recently and it, it's around the same time. And it had that, that I thought that's kind of what I was going to get of this kind of zany, even if it wasn't a wacky road movie, it's like presented as one because there is this competition we're all going to get to, which the movie occasionally thinks is important and then doesn't. And then when you get to it, you the competition itself is nothing. It's kind of a MacGuffin, I guess. But yet it's not because it, it it's then they're moving on to the next one. And I don't know. It just it I feel like there there was one more script revision worth diving back into on in this one to at least decide whose movie is it, what story is it, what do we want to leave people with? Because I left this movie thinking. Am I angry? Am I sad? Am I hopeful? I have no idea. Often in these films where you get like an odd couple type of pairing, although funnily enough, not the odd couple, but I was sort of thinking about films like Harold and Maud, In the Soup, The Producers, and a film that I'm forever grateful you introducing me to, Mike, The Fall, where you had two people thrown together who are vastly different, not necessarily antagonistic, 
but the arc is usually by the end of the film, one or both members of the couple will have learned something about life or something about the other person and how it's gone, how things have changed after this story. And the Todd and Reggie dynamic, so the Paul Giamatti, Andre Brower collaboration is in a way the closest to the traditional approach out of all three relationships that we see in this film, except that in this case, Todd makes the dramatic change in his life very early on in the film before meeting Reggie. And it seems that Reggie's job is to bring him back to what he was before they met. I have a little bit of problem with that. I mean, the, the, you see, I, I'm glad that you sent us the script because the problem that uh, you know, Todd goes on this rampage, his wife doesn't care about him, his kids don't care about him, corporate America sucks, he hates it. So it's almost like the relationship is, dude, I'm a professional criminal, you don't want this life, go back to corporate America. And early in the discussion, spoiler, but I get the feeling that by the end of the film, when he gets those mileage points offered to him and he's sort of back with his wife, that option is now over. He, he, you don't get the impression that post-credits that he's going to continue rallying against the evils of corporate America. He's just going to fall back into his own ways. Whereas in the script, the one that you sent us, Mike, that version of the script, he drives off into the distance and he's thinking, well, I'm not going to go shooting anyone. I'm not going to go killing anyone. But that old life is still not for me. And I would have liked to have seen that as the ending to their story. The way that the movie ends, it feels very much like uh, the Flitcraft story, which we've talked about on the show before. It's that idea of the man who was almost hit by a beam and suddenly realizes, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? And just drops everything, goes to another city, and starts his life over again. And then when the private detective that his wife hired to find him finds him, he's living almost the exact same life, but now in a different city just he fell back into those same old patterns. Now he's married to a different person who looks almost exactly the same as his wife that he left. He's doing a job that's almost exactly the same as the job that he left. And it's just a matter of like, he fell back into that old pattern so easily. And I can see Todd doing that. I don't imagine he's going to be wearing that earring much anymore. Maybe he'll go out on Friday nights and sing. Maybe not. I wonder whether this is an issue with how American cinema approaches those sorts of uh, uh, those sorts of characters. I was sort of thinking, like, in, there are obviously satirical films, uh, maybe like you know, "Thank You for Smoking" or uh, Enron's Smartest Guys in the Room" uh, as a documentary or something like that, where corporate America is held to account for the rotten things that they do, but. A film that I remember from maybe the mid-80s based on a great book. It was uh, Peter Weir's A Mosquito Coast, and Harrison Ford was the wild card in that. He is sick of consumerism. He's sick of Western society and how everyone throws everything out. And so he says, right, I'm picking up my family, and we're going to go somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and we're going to look after everything and – but his character goes off the rails. And so what starts out him saying things that actually make a whole lot of sense that, you know, we in uh, Western countries, everything is disposable and corporate America or corporate Australia or whatever is 
not doing the right thing, but his character is made to look nuts. In fact, in the book, he's really nuts. He goes over the edge. But the same thing he, they treat with Reggie. He comes up with a valid complaint. He's working as a, a, a real estate agent to try and build up these horrible environmental non-friendly theme parks. It's just going to knock over a lot of natural land. And he comes along with these very valid concerns. But the film basically treats him as, well, he's a, he's a nut job because he goes too far over the edge. And at the end of the film, it's not look as something ironic that he may be going back to corporate life. It's just saying, yeah, this is the thing to do. So, yeah, that troubles me a little bit. Well, it's funny. When he first goes up to sing, he's with um, Keegan Connor Tracy. And she gives him these pills and she says they're beta blockers. And I'm just like, oh, well, they're not beta blockers. They're bennies. And the way he acts and the way he's popping pills like crazy, I'm just like, yeah, these are bennies. And then I'm listening to the commentary and the producers are like, oh, yeah, those are beta blockers. And some people think that he's popping pills in the movie, but no, they're just these beta blockers. I'm just like, no, maybe that's what you think that we're supposed to think, but I think he's on Benny's, and he is definitely on Benny's in that script, in the John Byram script. So, it's like, yeah, no, he acts like he's hopped up on goofballs. These are not beta blockers. One thing I didn't pick up until the last time I watched it was that Keegan Connor Tracy, that her, it's her earring that he's wearing. Like her hair is, is long enough that you can't really see the earrings, but I specifically was looking and I was like, okay, yeah, had her hair been shorter or pulled back or something, then I would have made that connection that the earring that he's wearing is hers. And did I hear it correctly in the commentary that when she's singing, it's actually Maya Rudolph's voice? Yeah. I remember that old SNL sketch where uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was hosting, but Maya Rudolph is there with her saying like how they were friends when they were kids, which I, is kind of what I assume the connection was to having Maya Rudolph in this movie, that she must have known the Paltrows growing up. Well, yeah, and it's her father who is like the musical uh, coordinator, Richard Rudolph, a musical supervisor. And then like looking at the soundtrack credits, it's like, you know, musical coordination or like all this stuff. It's just like Richard Rudolph's name is on all of these songs. I'm like, wow, okay, that's pretty interesting. Didn't they say in the commentary, I think that Bruce Paltrow and um, uh, Richard Rudolph had been school chums or something? Yeah, it makes sense. I want to talk about the movie itself, but I think it would make sense if we broke it into three movies, because this basically is three movies that come together at the end. And I think continuing to talk about this Todd and Reggie movie makes a lot of sense, because to your guys' point, this is the most interesting story of the three for me as well. And like you said, also for me, the strongest actors. I mean, Andre Brower, I do not think it's nearly enough credit. I would call him one of the most underrated actors working today. I, I think of him the same way I think of Alfred Woodard, where you have two actors, anything you see them in, you say, my God, they're good. And they're so different. And every you see them in, in one movie, then to a TV show, and you forget that it's the same person. And they have this presence. They, I mean, you can tell Andre Brower thinks about a script and thinks about a character and, and all of that. There's something... And it's not a like kind of Meryl Streep artificial, you know, they're, they've worked hard on the character work. You just can tell he doesn't take a job lightly. And even in this, where I, I have a lot of problems with this storyline and where it goes, it's never him. He even when, and he, I mean, he is not singing, he's lip syncing, 
But it's one of those moments when you realize that lip syncing is a very hard thing to act. Well, it sounded like he was doing the songs and then the guy who sang them actually was actually recording over his performance so that the music was matching him, which is a really smart thing to do. Didn't they say that it's not that Andre Brow didn't have a good voice? They said he actually had a good voice, but it wasn't the sweet, soulful voice that they thought that this character actually needed, which is a bit of a shame because, I mean, given that I think just about everyone else does use their real voice, that would have been a, a, like a, a nice bonus. But yeah, sure, I guess. But it's done so well that it never feels like it's not him. I didn't know until I looked up the trivia that it wasn't him singing. And that's a, a testament to the filmmaking that they did that very well, where the that singer does sound like him singing and the matching of it's done, I, I thought, un- uncanny in some ways. Do either of you remember a film, a Woody Allen film from the 90s called Everyone Says I Love You? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, so I'm just pleased to be able to say that the actors in this film can actually sing because Alan Alder and Goldie Horn and Julia Roberts and Tim Roth could not sing. I mean, I think Woody Allen said, yes, of course they can't sing. The beauty of this is I want to be able to present people as naturally as possible. And I think, no, no, man, it's a musical. People want to sing. It also makes you wonder... Though, because Drew Barrymore is in that movie and they dubbed her. She must have been terrible. Like she said, and that's what you makes me think like, gee, how bad was she if if this is what they let go for everybody else? Emily, you said that you love karaoke and Morris, I know you sing professionally. So do you karaoke as well as singing for your band? My acapella group, I haven't been with for about two years or so. When I was playing drums in a band. I was like background singer for that. Karaoke, yes. In the 80s, I think mid 80s, they started something here, which was, it was karaoke, but they called it the, uh, well, I, I won't refer to it by name because that would be selling a, a product, but there was a, a beer company, a New Zealand beer. So people will probably work it out that was sponsoring a, what they called the Star Maker Night. And I looked into that, saw what that was. And yeah, I found that completely addictive. Uh, and, but the way how they would do it is it, they'd run well, several ordinary nights and several nights they'd run as a heat to, for the competition. And then you'd go to the final. And I don't think anyone was giving out a $5,000 prize like, like that. But I went and sang Paul Simon's late in the evening on the final. And I think I came in third, which entitled me to uh, a $100 check, which wasn't signed and a case of beer, which I didn't like the flavor of and was never delivered anyway. So, boo. But yeah, but long, long answer to a short question. Yes, I did do a lot of karaoke in the 80s. So, I feel like I actually have one up on you because my, so I, I mean, I, again, I've, I've gone to bars and sang karaoke. And one day, years, probably about 10 years ago now, I was in a bar in New York that was doing karaoke. And I get up and I sing probably like everything I do, I do it for you or put loose or whatever I sing. And afterwards, this guy comes up to me. And says, hey, you were really good. And I say, well, thank you. He says, I know what I'm talking about because I'm a former rock star. You and I should sing together. So I'm like, okay, sure. And I can't tell if he's trying to pick me up or if he really wants to sing with me. So we do. He's like, well, what do you know? And he, we, and he opens up the menu. Um, and we decide to do Hotel California. And he says, okay, here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to start each verse and then you're going to take it away. This way I can ease you into it because, you know, I know what I'm doing. 
And I'm like, uh, uh, okay. So we sing Hotel California. It's it's fine. I have a good time. And afterwards, I I ask him, I'm like, so what do you mean you're a former rock star? And he says, have you ever heard of a band called the Jim Blossoms? No. 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 Yes. I mean, I mean, no, no. And of course, like like anybody, I'm like, yeah, of course, hey, jealousy. And then, of course, I'm like, I don't know what anybody in the Jim Blossoms looks like. And I still don't know if this guy was just like, this is what he did. He's like, yeah, I go to karaoke bars and I flirt with women and tell them I was a Jim Blossom because none of them know what I look like. Or if he really was a former Jim Blossom. But that that's uh, one of my claim to fames in the karaoke world. Oh, there you go. I'd have paid good money to see that. I think my favorite karaoke story is one that I had nothing to do with. I was in Chicago with uh, my friend uh, Skiz, and we were staying at our friend's place for the Chicago Underground Film Festival. And we're driving around, and he's like, oh, pull in here, pull in here. And I'm like, okay. And like we pull into the, the spot that was actually available on a side street in uh, Chicago, which is amazing enough. And we get out, and he's like, oh, I just want to stop in here for a little bit. And we go in, and it's a bar. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. We grab a table and stuff. And there's somebody singing karaoke, and walks up to the the KJ, I guess it is. Like this this movie is full of, of all these terms I had never heard. Yeah. Next thing you know, as soon as the song that was playing ends, gets up and they start playing Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden and he just like does the whole song of Run to the Hills, basically does a mic drop and is like, okay, let's go. Nice. <laughs> oh nice. Did you ever sing karaoke, Mike? I sang karaoke once at a, actually twice, and both times have been at corporate events. One time I did, um, what is that dynamite hack song? Woke up quick at about noon. Just thought that I had to be incompetent soon. I gotta get drunk before the day begins. Before my mother starts bitching about my friends. And then I went to another one and. I will tell you, never choose Paradise by the Dashboard Light as your karaoke <laughs> song. Version? It was the damn no. full version. No, and, no, no, Mike, no. And I did have a female partner with me, which was good. So she got to sing the female parts, and I sang the meatloaf's parts. But you get to that baseball section, and you're dead. You're dead in the water. If you can't do it, then you have no right to do that. But that's the thing about a karaoke audience. You know, they generally, at least in my experience, Back in the 80s, they're reasonably encouraging. You know, you go, you get the visceral thrill of being able to sing in front of people, no matter how good or otherwise you are. You don't have to worry about uh, the, you know, a guitar player having sex with your girlfriend or, yeah, I mean, that, the, real, the whole thing is it's about the visceral thrill. You don't have to worry about uh, weeks and weeks of rehearsal. I mean, I don't know, maybe... Maybe the professional karaoke people do. I find a lot of pleasure in rock band and being able to do the songs in rock band. Usually I like to play, of all things, I like to play the drums in rock band. But usually I'm with a, a friend of a friend and she plays the drums in rock band. So I'm just like, okay, what am I going to do? And nobody wants to be the singer. Everybody wants to play an instrument while you're playing rock band. So I just subject them to hours of me singing all the different styles. And, you know, especially when it comes to the Guns N' Roses, man, oh, man, does that shred, shred my vocal cords. Yeah, but say, don't, don't plan any podcasts for the next day when you do that. 
It's been quite a few years since I've done that. I, uh, for some reason, they haven't asked me back recently. Uh, see, I also I lived in Korea for a year, and karaoke rooms are really popular there. So you know, you you do the thing where you can go rent your own room, and it's private and fun and all that. You also, I remember there was a restaurant. It was an Indonesian restaurant that I would go to with friends, and they had karaoke and they had a stage with a drum set, and like you know, we'd all get up there and sing. And I remember I got up there and I sang like. I, again, I, I go for the kind of goofy, dumb ones that I don't really need to have a good voice for, but that I can perform fun. So I think I probably did like the Rainbow Connection or something. And then after I was about to sit down and like the waiter ran over, he's like, no, 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 we're doing it again. And he ran to the, ran to the drum set and we had to sing it again because he wanted to accompany me, I guess. It is fun. And I think, and I've seen shy people who don't want to stand up in front, you know, you give them a mic and say, no, I'll, I'll do it with you. And because the words are there, because they, I think it's because you have something, you're not looking at the audience, you can, but so often you're standing there holding something, you're holding a microphone, which makes you a little more comfortable. You're looking at a screen, so you don't have to look into the eyes of people watching you. And there's something really, like, and I, I don't know that this movie taps into that spirit as much as I'd like it to. Again, that's where I think if this was just about Paul Giamatti and Andre Brower, you could have gotten that because you would have seen Paul Giamatti's journey, right? You would have seen the moment when he's like, oh, oh, I found something. I found something that makes me feel alive. You get that, but you get that so rushed. And then the next scene, Maria Bello's, you know, um, pimping herself out for a pink car. It's, and then, then the next scene is Gwyneth Paltrow trying to seduce her father. So there's all these things. And then you, the actual like beauty and kind of poetry of karaoke. I don't think this movie gets really sings it the way it wants to because the the ending when you have the idea that this art form has brought these people together it's so weird that these four people are going off together because oh the, these are the four that end up together who's are they or is we have i guess a couple here and they're all going with each other uh, okay like, there's something odd about it and i think there's clearly, you know, this was made from a place of, I want to tell this story of, of karaoke. Uh, I'm guessing, you know, Bruce Paltrow wanted to, you know, there was enough in here that he said, I want to make this movie. I want to make it with my daughter, which, and I think that aspect kind of works in its own really weird way. But for, for it to be the only movie that I know of about karaoke, I feel like it could have been more about karaoke. Well, this movie was so plagued with issues. I mean, this wasn't supposed to be Bruce Paltrow's movie. It was supposed to be John Byram's movie. He was supposed to write and direct this after so long. And then, what, he ended up getting Lyme disease and wasn't able to carry through. So that's why, like, you look at the script and the version that we have is from 98. And the movie doesn't come out until 2000. So it's like, okay, there's a little bit of a gap there. And then as they're getting ready, as they're prepping the movie, that's when Bruce Paltrow finds out that he's got throat cancer the movie schedule has to work in such a way that he can go down and get like radiation treatments and he has surgery right before the movie starts shooting it's just like oh my god this is nuts it's like the poltergeist but without the like deaths like it's kind of like the, the more mild uh like side effects of a cursed movie <laughs> the poltergeist because the scenes of todd the paul giamatti character singing like that first song is fantastic when he brings reggie up on stage that is fucking amazing and you would think we would get like 
at least two or three more times that they're up on stage together. Like once they bond over Try a Little Tenderness, you would think that we would get a few more duets of those guys and just be like, wow, we can really do this. Because Reggie says, you know, learn a trade. I have. This is it. The only skill I have is singing. And he fucking does. And yeah, and the other thing that always gets me is that at the end of the movie, when we come to this big karaoke contest, Todd doesn't sing. And I'm like, why isn't he singing? We get almost everybody else, but we don't get Todd. I'm just like, come on. I want one more Paul Giamatti number. You lose the opportunity for Brower to do that great song, Freebird. I mean, that was... There was something interesting I just wanted to bring up for a few minutes to talk about the song choice in the film. And I know that there was talk about in, I think, your interview about the uh, the cost of using songs in particular film. And I know as we had our hands slapped last month over the Ventures film about the costly use of music in films. But, uh, I mean, I, I think in, in the original script, they said that Amazing Grace – was supposed to be the choice and, you know, you sort of think, well, yeah, that's quite an appropriate song. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Was bland. And it's public domain. And it's public domain. No, I can see. But, of course, Freebird, if I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? I must be traveling on now. I cannot change. And he's looking at Todd in the audience. Maybe it sort of makes more sense story-wise for the two of them to be up that one last time. But visually, it sort of works that he's there, he's doing this one thing that Todd wouldn't have a clue about, and he's just singing this song to him. It's like you know, a, a, a love song, a song of friendship. That is something that really, really works for me. And whatever other issues I have with the other two relationships in the film, that just is so perfect to me. I, I love that ended up being the song. On the other hand... The song that you sort of think, ugh, creepy, was where we get the Gwyneth Paltrow character and the Huey Lewis character. And I, I must say, I think Huey Lewis acts really well in this. I personally think he does a great job. But they were supposed to do uh, A Song for You by Donny Hathaway, at least according to the script. And he sings, you know, uh, the, the lyrics in that. I know your image uh, of me is what I hope to be. I treated you unkindly, but darling, can't you see that no one is more important to me? And that is a song from a father to a daughter. But cruising by Smokey Robinson, this is not a one-night stand. Baby, tonight belongs to us. And uh, really, in what world does a latent father sing that to his daughter? That's... It's, it's very uh, kind of anticipating the Afternoon Delight duet on Arrested Development. <laughs> well, but their relationship is also really effing weird. The scene of them in the hotel room towards the end when Todd's there painting his nails and the wife comes in, Candy comes in. Strange name for a woman, but when Candy... Not, not fitting of that character at all, either. Yeah, Candy is just a cipher. Um, but that whole scene of them in that hotel room, Todd and Reggie, that was a reshoot. And Paltrow was talking on the commentary about how Giamatti's hair is different. He actually flew down. He was in The Iceman Cometh. He flew down for one day to do a reshoot and had to get back into that character God love him. The guy's fantastic. Yeah, he can pull it off. Something else Paltrow says a lot in the commentary that was kind of shocking when I first heard it, but then I thought, oh, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear somebody talk about this, 
was he's there's a lot of scenes of very white pasty Paul Giamatti and very black Andre Brower together. And there's some night scenes, there's scenes of them in the car. And Paltrow talks about how it's really difficult to light a black man and a white man together in a scene. And that's something um, I've seen a lot more discussion about with fashion photography as of late of how white photographers don't really know how to shoot black people, how a lot of black cinematographers, how you can you can sometimes tell the difference in a film of is the cinematographer white or black um, or a person of color, because there's a different understanding of light hits skin differently. And if you're white, you've you're used to kind of shooting white people. Um, but that you have to adjust to the way light hits skin, different skin tones differently. It was at first kind of like shocking to hear somebody say it, but it's a true thing and something that I was kind of like, I don't know, it was interesting to hear that discussed in a way that w- that was very matter of fact and saying, look, I don't know how to shoot black people. Like, you're right, that that that, that takes a different set of skill. And that he even post-corrected a lot of things. And he was talking about, you know, oh, yeah, I went down to this post house and was really tweaking the colors and this to make sure that you could see both of these gentlemen at the same time. And, yeah, I, I really appreciated that, too, Emily. I'm glad you brought that up. And if you want somebody to shoot a black man, all you have to do is find a cop. Yeah, well, and also, well, let's make a point of saying, I mean, that's true in this movie. Do we think that's pretty problematic? Like, and this is kind of a black savior film, is it not? Yeah, basically, he does suicide by cop in order to save the white guy because they will never go after the white guy. I'm sure, you know, obviously, he gets away clean at the end. And this movie's interesting that they don't show what happens in that gas station, though you can see it in the deleted scenes, but they never address it. So you don't know when you're watching the final version of this thing. It's just like, I don't know what happened with that. And there could have been some bad things, but regardless. I I kept going back thinking like, you know, did I miss it? I look away. Let me go to the Wikipedia synopsis and see beat by beat. And I I was very confused by the end. I couldn't remember and didn't really understand who killed who, if anybody died. And I understand because I'm sure this was test audience and, you know, people say, well, they killed someone, so I'm not on his side anymore. But again, it makes for a very confusing character uh, because the film doesn't give enough time to Andre Brower. He's a good enough actor that I want to watch him do anything. But there's a part of me that also is really annoyed by how little the film seems to want to know him. Like, we know he was in prison for most of his life, I guess. You know, and sure, the idea that, oh, he doesn't know how to do anything. He doesn't know how to drive. But he speaks in a very educated way. He can talk to people. Like, it's, wait, so he's just been in jail for his entire, like, I don't know if I, I feel like there's more there. And I want to know more about him. But instead... I have to cut away to Scott Speedman, which I really don't need. We get that scene that was one of the deleted scenes I had on the DVD once he's released from prison. So we don't get anything like they have in the script where we actually see him in prison and getting a bit of an idea who he is there. But at least in they filmed that moment where he gets let out of prison and he's picked up by, was it a bail bondsman? Oh, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, parole officer. Parole officer, that's right. And he is being so disparaging towards the Andre Brower character. And you can sort of see right from the outset that the same sort of, you know, the world hasn't changed. The same prejudice that he faced that led him to, you know, 
getting into prison and maybe he faced in prison, that, that same prejudice is still there. He's, he's not a, a free man with a new chance. He's just some guy who, nah, you're a criminal, you're always a criminal. I mean, that scene should have been in the film. I mean, we, we do get enough sympathy for his character. His one through line is, I made an error in judgment. That's the thing the whole way through. I, I think maybe that sort of follows. We know where his heart is, but he, he just can't seem to help himself. You know, right, he's out. He's gonna, he holds up that truck driver. And in the script, I think it indicates that he might have killed him. Yeah, he, he, I would have liked, as he say. Yeah, in the screenplay, he does, I believe, right? Mm. He does shoot him. Right, and the right, guy right. also isn't so, not that he's a nice guy in the movie, but the truck driver, I think, uses some racial slurs at him and then he shoots him. So at least there's, a, you know, it was a much harder edge uh, to the screenplay. And again, I don't think that would have been a, a bad thing if that was its own movie. I think if you bundle that with, here's Scott Speedman and his wacky third grade teacher, then it's it's weird. And, and that's where I think the problem I had with it was it's just there's too many different tones and they're not extreme tones. And, and I wish it had either, again, gone farther or been more consistent. It also comes back to that thing that I said earlier on about Paul Giamatti's relationship to corporate America and how he's sort of forgiven. And you look at the comparison between the crimes that he feels he's committing against the environment and the ecology. If you commit those sorts of crimes as a, a, a white-collar worker and a white worker, uh, the police aren't looking for you. Even when you go and shoot up someone in a 7-Eleven, the police aren't looking for you. They're only looking for Reggie. And that closed-circuit camera was there on both of them, but it was Reggie they go looking for. Well, even if you storm the U.S. Capitol building, if you're white, it's okay. Yeah, and it is interesting that Reggie is the person who has the most scenes cut out because there's, yeah, the parole officer you talked about. There's another scene where he goes into another convenience store. It's like H.I. McDonough when it comes to convenience stores, and he knocks the one guy over the head with a bottle of some sort of drink and then takes the gun and we're off to the truck stop, the truck driver part of it. And then we get the final deleted scene, which is more of what happens in that uh, convenience store at the end when the, with the uh, gas station attendant. And yeah, that's where we get him shooting out the camera. And it's interesting how they cover that with the two gunshots from outside and then that really bad post uh, slow-mo that they do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it. I, I think there's maybe a train going by or something. There's something going on where you're just like, yeah, that's really fucked up slow-mo. You can tell that they did that in post. Um, but, you know, they had to do something to cover that up. And then I was very shocked when they talked on the commentary about how that scene in the hotel room uh, that I was talking about where Candy comes back. I don't think she originally came back. And what originally Byron had wrote was that Reggie realizes that Todd has gone off the deep end completely and will never come back. And he basically does a um, of mice and men and puts Todd down like a rabid dog. Yeah. This movie definitely had a journey. Like you said, <laughs> from, from page to screen. They shaved off 
all of the rough edges, I don't know if I would have been able to handle as jagged as that original project was, or if it would have been too milk toast had they given it that extra rewrite you were talking about. Would they have taken out everything interesting? So somewhere in there between the movie that we saw that I like and the script, which is a little rougher, that 98 version, somewhere in there I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a really good thing in here. I still like the final product, but yeah, it is interesting to see the journey that it took and be like, oh, wow, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> this, this, There's some really different things in here. But then there are some where it's like, this doesn't necessarily make sense. Like, Let's talk a little bit about the uh, Susie and uh, I would keep wanting to call him Tim, but he's Billy. He was Tim in the script, I think. Oh, that's why I was thinking Tim, too. So Susie and Billy. Oh, Billy. And Susie, I think she actually gets the opening scene of the script. And we really follow Susie a lot more. Yeah, because Susie in the script starts as, as a West Virginia waitress it reminds me kind of like the opening of burlesque. Like it's very like, no, I'm going to the big city after that. It's, it pretty much mirrors, I think the uh, movie closer, but still it's very, you know, when you think of kind of the, the nature of these characters and how the Todd and um, Reggie is a very fresh kind of, again, I have a lot of problems with the direction it goes, which feels familiar, but it's a different story. It's not one we see. I mean, this movie really, I think what's really cool about it is it's called duets. You have three sets of duets, if you will, and none of them are romances, which is interesting, which is, you know, it's, it's taking the harder way around. And the Susie and Billy stuff, I think for me falls the flattest. Not, I love Maria Bello and I think, I think she's great in this and I, I really like hearing her saying, I didn't know she could, but I don't know where their characters start and end. Cause I don't, I think the movie just kind of starts at least with her in the middle of her journey. So we get one scene of like basically a, you know, a moral guy telling her, you don't have to sleep with people to get what you want. And her saying, okay, kind of, and but we don't even know if she really believes that. So it's it's the least developed, but it's the, the one that I didn't want more of anyway. The one change that they made that I didn't appreciate was once she wins the $500 at one of the contests, Billy's like helping her, leading her out or whatever, just like uh, they're leaving the karaoke bar. And in the movie, you see the guy come up to her and be like, hey, baby, you know, a promise is a promise. Like, basically, he's there for his blowjob for the hotel room because that's how she's paying for things is through blowjobs through the entire United States. And Speedman, Billy, a.k.a. Tim, takes some of the winnings and gives it to the guy and just like, you know, here you go. And it's like, see, you can actually pay for things. You don't have to give blowjobs all the time. Again, that's a little condescending. but. It's a little better than him just pushing the guy away and being that savior and also breaking the promise that she made to the guy. He, he, this guy is owed a blowjob. Yeah, this was a deal. She, yeah, I mean, that again is just, it's so underdeveloped. And, and I, you know, and when I read Byram's screenplay, I don't really want him developing more, quite frankly. All of his scenes of like describing when you get to uh, Tim's girlfriend. Right, Tim's, um, I guess it's his girlfriend or fiance. 
she's only in there very briefly. It's, you know, it's how we, uh, Billy, I should say, we meet him. He's, you know, he's a good guy. He was going to be a priest, but he decided not to be. He comes home and his girlfriend is having sex with his partner. And the dialogue again, if you don't mind, I'm going to read some of it from the script because I think it's just really telling to how women are kind of perceived in here. First, because she's trying to apologize and she says, you know, Billy or Tim, you're the greatest guy I've ever met. You were the first man I ever had sex with after 10 years of being with women. The sex was great. You were so sweet, so tender. It was almost like being with a girl. And then when she's when he hasn't forgiven her, she says, don't start the cheerleader act, okay? I'm sick of it. I'm a nympho, lesbo, junkie, alcoholic slut that you found in the gutter and tried to put wings on. <laughs> no, no, don't write women. <laughs> That's the only way that men can treat women. Either we respect them and try to put wings on them, or we treat them like trash. And she liked Ralph because he treated her like trash. Of course, yeah. That, that's, you know, how, how we roll, generally. And she just gives mixed signals. So so it's it's frustrating because it doesn't, I mean, what does Tim or Billy, I'm going to keep, what does Billy Tim learn in this movie I don't know. He he drives his cab across country and decides he's just going to go to karaoke bars and not sing because he doesn't sing. Uh, he is the most boring character in this whole thing. And I honestly forgot that he was even in this movie when I was... Because he doesn't need to be. And they try to kind of shoehorn a romance in towards the end of him and Gwyneth Paltrow. And that's another whole uh, beast in this story is that originally it was supposed to be Brad Pitt and I don't know if when it was Brad Pitt, they would have worked in a song for him or if he would have had a bigger part, if that would have been different. I don't know. I mean, Scott Speedman is a very kind of, I don't know. I don't find him the most charismatic actor. I think he's, he's the, he, if he was born 10 years later, he would have been your typical Hallmark leading man. Uh, and that's what he is in this. He's just there to move people along. I, I don't understand why he has to have even this romantic spark with Gwyneth Baltrow at the end when we have, we have no idea what she wants in a man <laughs> because I mean, I guess she wants Huey Lewis in a man. And I, I don't, I, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of questions. Well, the script is saying, well, there has to be at least one romance here. It's part of that. There was that, that Bechdale test or whatever. No, we need one romance. And I guess we can't have her continually lusting after her father. One moment early on in the film, which I thought was pure brilliance was where we get introduced to Billy. He's going in his capacity as taxi driver to pick up his old grade three teacher. She's been caught, what was it, a, a shoplifting chicken or something like that? She had a turkey and two pairs of nylons stuffed in the, down her crotch. I'm sorry, I, I didn't get the details right. She gives him grief uh, saying, I always knew what an underachiever you were as an eight-year-old. And their, their dialogue back and forth, that was absolutely brilliant. And I was sort of hoping that the film was going to end up that they went on the road and she was like an Ethel Merman type of belter. And, <laughs> I would uh, take it. And she would be singing songs from Gypsy or something like that. Everything's coming up, roses! Or, or the Broadway equivalent of a karaoke night. I was just so disappointed. Oh, that's not the relationship. That's not, It comes and goes with that one scene. And I think that would have been a far more interesting relationship. Certainly with the banter. I mean, maybe the storyline wouldn't have been any better. But I think that the, the dialogue, the potential for dialogue in those scenes would have been absolutely fantastic. And if you look at the lineage 
of his relationship with women. It comes back to, I think, what you were saying before, Emily, about the two types of women that are going to be in film. They're either going to be the saviour or they're going to be in the gutter. And you look at the relationships. There's his grade three teacher. There's his girlfriend who cheats on him. There's Susie who's overcompensating her attitude because of her own low confidence. But he has that spark with Liv who's going to be his angelic saviour at the end. So that's I just thought that that was a, a very deliberate byline in this script. It would have been too weird having this moment where his character, because he's, he's a cab driver, he owns half a cab, and he's given $10. Like, he is the only person that takes the small paying gigs to take people home from the, um, uh, the jailhouse from the police station to their homes. And it's a $10 flat fee. And it would have been too weird having him trying to give his, third grade teacher and she eventually takes the ten dollars and then right around that time would have been the parole officer driving reggie home and him trying to give reggie 25 dollars and just him like i don't need the state to pay for anything for me but it would have been uh, either a weird a parallel or a good parallel yeah, yeah because the idea that he's the only one that does it well because like there's something there to his character where he is a good guy right where he was going to be a priest and I'm not saying all priests are good guys, but you become a priest be- typically because you want to help people. That's a good character thing to have and an interesting note to play, but it doesn't do anything with him because it just makes him judgmental of Maria Bello. And you're right, like, there, there was an opportunity right there for him to drive by Andre Brower as Andre Brower was throwing in the $25 back at the parole officer. But the movie just doesn't make that connection. Um, one note about uh, Marion Seldes, uh, I was so happy to see her in this. She, when I was in college, she taught at the college I went to, she taught at um, Fordham in the theater department. I wasn't an actor there, but I was in the theater department, so she would come to shows. She would come to student shows, like student-produced shows and student-written shows. And it was like that, I always think of like the kind of like Peter O'Toole in Troy moment of this mediocre, not great movie, and then all of a sudden, this actor comes in and everything stops and you just listen to him speak because he has this weight. And that was her, like, she, very, very friendly. Everybody loved her. Um, and when she spoke to you, you just, like, your whole body had chills. And you, like, she gave me a compliment. And I still think about that. I'm like, oh my God, Marion felt this respect to something I did. Um, just because she had that aura of, about her of this is an actor. And so it's fun to see her in this. And yeah, I would have easily taken. You know, have her steal Scott Speedman's cab and have her and Maria Bello on the road. That's the movie I want. Apparently, that whole thing with the cab was something that Byron had, he had actually picked up his third grade teacher and she was berating him. Oh, my I totally Lord. believe that. I listened to that interview. I believe that. He should have expanded on that. I, I confess, I don't really know anything about Marion Seldes. This is the first thing I've seen that I can recall her being in, but I got a vibe of her being like, Nancy Marchand, who played uh, Livia Soprano, and also, I think, Frazier's mother in a couple of episodes of Cheers. Yeah, I, I was drawn to her as a character. Yeah, she did a lot of stage work. That was what she was primarily known for. I like Maria Bello, too. I was very impressed with her singing. I had no idea that she could carry a tune as well as she does. I, th- I think she's fantastic. There's one song that she sings that I have never heard before in my entire life and 
it's like the only song in the movie where I'm like, okay, I have no connection. And I almost start to check out because I don't know the song. Every other song that she sings, I'm like, okay, great. This is cool. But there's that one song where I'm just like, what is this thing? That was a Bonnie Wright song? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Bonnie Wright song. I can't make you love me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've never heard it before in my life. You've never heard that song? Wow. I mean, it's. I, I feel like it's a very different version of it, that it is a slowed down version, which kind of doesn't make sense for karaoke, where you're supposed to be singing what they have. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm not a music person. And now I'm impressed with myself because I know a song you don't know. I did think it was funny. You were talking earlier, uh, Morris, about some of the songs that were in the script. And I, it wasn't Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but Heaven by the Dashboard Light. <laughs> Which I think was supposed to be Paradise. But they almost had that in the movie. And when I saw that, I nearly plotzed. Maybe they're only casual meatloaf fans, which makes sense to me. Who can be a casual meatloaf fan, though? You have to be all the way in or not. Maybe that was their way of taking the piss, saying, you <laughs> fucking meatloaf. Ugh, it's seven by the dash line. Yeah. I remember this being sold as a Gwyneth Paltrow film. And I guess it when it by the time it came out, she had won the Oscar already. Like she was a really big name, so she was kind of first on the poster. But watching it, that was one of the biggest things that surprised me was, oh, she's this is an ensemble, but she's one of the smaller parts of the ensemble. But what a weird part and and decision. And we definitely need to address the whatever she's supposed whatever again to make another Arrested Development reference kind of Charlize Theron in season three when you think she's kind of a manic pixie, but really she's actually just a little touched. I don't know how old she's supposed to be. Right. That is a little troublesome. And I'm talking about the character, not necessarily Gwyneth Paltrow. I don't know if she's supposed to be early 20s because so the story with with those two characters just for the audience is Ricky Dean is played by Huey Lewis and he is a karaoke hustler he likes to go in and he's the it's the first scene of the movie we get to see him we get to see um lachlan monroe who i mostly know i think he was on charmed for a lot of years and he's this guy ronnie jackson he's got this super sparkly jacket and basically he is the jacket there's nothing really behind him and he works at the mill during the day or whatever and he karaoke's at night and he's a big deal to all these local yokels and ricky dean shows up and he's got his uh his nerdy glasses on he's basically reprising the role that he played in back to the future i'm afraid you're just too darn loud and he's just like oh what do you guys call it karateoke and he's he's just acting up a storm here as far as like what a lame thing karaoke is and they end up making a bet, and then he goes up on stage, whips off the glasses, and starts singing Joe Cocker, and it just blows everybody out of the fucking water. So I guess who judges that contest that he wins the bet, but obviously they know he's the better singer. He goes through his life, he gets a call that night when he's fucking this woman that he picked up at karaoke, and finds out that his former wife or just a woman that he oh, fucked? Oh, I just thought it was a woman he fucked. Okay, so a woman that he fucked, that she's dead, and he ends up going to the funeral, which seems kind of out of character for him, but apparently had some sort of relationship with her, knew her well enough that he knew the daughter that he had by her, and sent her presence up until she was 12, it sounds like. 
Yeah, which let me read you the description from the screenplay of Gwyneth Paltrow's character, uh, who we meet when he goes to the funeral and there's a beautiful blonde standing over the corpse of his, his dead girlfriend, whatever it was. Uh, in the screenplay, here's how she's described. Stunning, sexually pro- provocative young woman, the most uh, sexually provocative young woman he has ever seen in his life. She's 19, tall, body perfect, hair a wild blonde mane above crazy blue eyes. She wears a tiny silver miniskirt and a little pink sweater that separates her perfect navel from her luscious breasts. I don't know if you know this, but a man wrote this screenplay. No shit. Yes. And then um, after uh, he actually talks to her, another line uh, of um, stage direction, if you will, in the movie, the stunning sex toy suddenly looks like a frightened little girl. Tell him about how she ends up sitting on his lap and talks about his erection that he gets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And again, the fact that it's Bruce Paltrow, which I totally understand. If, if my dad was a director and a producer, of course I'd want to work with him at some point. And of course, if I'm Bruce Paltrow, I want to direct my daughter at some point. It is hard to look at that and not say... Okay, so this is the movie you guys decided to do together. A movie that has a lot of Oedipal things going on here. Or rather, I guess, Electra, if you want to be gender correct. What about the Argento family? Very Asia is what you're saying? <laughs> correct. <laughs> correct. They tone that stuff way down for the movie that we see. And yet still. It's still, still there. there. Totally. You can still feel it. Yeah. They're definitely flirting. She doesn't comment on the hard-on that he has. She doesn't sit on his lap. But there's that strangeness, and they still get adjoining rooms at the hotel. Though, in this version, he doesn't know that she has followed him and has gotten this adjoining room. It's interesting, that scene of when they confront each other in the hotel, when she knocks on the door and says, hey, I've got this room next door and all this. Apparently, Paltrow was not happy with that scene, and he was just like, I really wish we could have filmed that again. I would have liked to have gone back to that. And it was interesting to hear all of the times where he wasn't happy with stuff, and also when he did a lot of reshoots. You know, The other thing I, I just thought of that was in the script that wasn't in the movie is when Ricky Dean tries his act the second time, tries to do oh, his whole uh, hustler act. Yeah, he oversteps and like really tries too hard and also a hustler at karaoke and have your own CD. Come on. No, no, dude. No. Well, in the script, they realize and they realize in the movie that he's taking them for a ride. But in the movie, they just end up punching him. And then the next time you see him, he's shopping for clothes with Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, there's a really good reason why they're shopping for clothes from the script, which is he gets the shit kicked out of him and ends up hospitalized. And he goes to put his his nerd outfit on again, and it's torn to shreds because he's been beaten so badly so that's why they have to go close (laughs) and there's also a a deeper like running storyline about the way he dresses and the way he kind of presents himself that his nerd look is like literally nerd look in the script where he takes effort to put this kind of facade on presumably i guess just so that he can hustle but also that like it's his armor and i i feel like the script that was trying to kind of dig into that of you know, that this man that kind of keeps himself protected because he doesn't, why does he do this? It's it, like, he's a good singer to where he could make a living singing in some capacity, 
but he chooses to kind of be more of a like nomadic grifter when it comes to it. And there's a, I, I think, I don't know, as much as I like his performance a lot in the movie, I do agree. I think Huey Lewis can act and I love hearing him sing, even when he's singing sexy songs with his uh, screen daughter. But I don't know that I get his, again, where he starts at A and he goes to A minus, like where does he go in terms of his character? I don't know that there's any real growth. He's still traveling around singing. He's just now doing it in a car with three other people. And we should probably talk that this is not just basically three mini movies that are mashed together because not only are these stories about these two characters per film, but then to your point, it's a road movie for each one of these. And I never really paid attention to the screen direction because that's usually something that I really pay attention to in movies where it's, and I know because I'm a nerd, the whole idea of, okay, if you're shooting someone traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast, how do you shoot them? Right. How many days does this movie take place over? I have, I, I could say two or I could say a month and I wouldn't, I would bet even on both of them. I don't know where they start and I don't know where they finish. Like sometimes I'll hear like, oh, you're going to Nevada. For this. Okay, well, I, I think I know where Nevada is. And you said, like, Maria Bello's from West Virginia, but we don't start in West Virginia. I think we start in Cincinnati. But I don't really pick up, like, I guess Cincinnati Police Department maybe is what we see, but I don't need a map. Well, I could have used some more traveling by map. I think that might have been helpful. Something to tell me. Like I said, I'm a nerd, so I'm always like, okay, if you're going from the East Coast to the West Coast in a movie, usually you shoot the car going from screen right to screen left. I don't know how you do north to south that well or south to north. You know, I'll have to go back and watch uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy and see which way uh, Joe Buck and Rizzo are going. But it, it was weird to me as far as – and apparently they – they paid attention to that. You hear them talk about that in the audio commentary, but I'm just like, I have no idea where these people are, where they're at, how far they've traveled. And to your point, how many days this is taking? How long has Todd been out getting a pack of cigarettes? That moment where Andre Brower's character calls up Todd's, calls up Paul Giamatti's wife, she's sitting there in bed like nothing's happened. Oh, I guess he's still out for cigarettes. And then she gets in her car and she's there while they're still there. Like, how long does it take her to drive there? I don't know your geography. I can't tell. Yeah, well, neither can the movie, so don't feel bad. And I just have to kick uh, something while it's down. No wonder TWA went out of business, that they're ca cashing in all of those travel miles for Todd at the end of right, the movie. Holiday Inn knew better. We're talking about, like, how much do you stay with these characters? And I will admit, if that scene of them shooting the guy in the convenience store was in the movie, I don't know if I would have been able to stay with Todd and Reggie and been able to pull for these guys because they are the guys that you pull for the most while you're watching it. I don't know if I would have been able to do that. It's already They're not good people. Like nobody in this movie is a good person. I guess I guess Billy is supposed to be. It's already asking me a lot to continue to like Todd after he's shooting in the hotel lobby and shoots the fax machine and stuff. And it's just like, it's, and it's very like, especially today when you watch it and you think very, Oh, it's that white man entitlement. This is falling down. It's all those things that I, that have aged for me really poorly. Yeah. Cause this guy's just trying to do his job and sorry, the promotion ended and the guy's not too snotty. You know, it's not like, 
you know, because sometimes service people are just super snotty when they don't need to be. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, there's one guy's like, oh, you didn't read about that today. You know, that was yesterday that it ended. I don't think that's the guy he pulls the gun on. Yeah. And so it's very like, it is, it's, it's, you know, anytime you see an, a, a character being cruel to a waiter in a movie, you instantly hate that character, right? It's shorthand for you to know it's a bad person. Same way in real life. If you see somebody, obviously the last few months, we've all seen it. You know, you go somewhere and the poor cashier has to deal with people and you just, you sit there and you watch somebody be awful to them. It's not a good look. It's not a sympathetic look. And it's another just weird thing that does, I think, really hurt this movie. Nobody's really cheerable. Like Todd should be. And the fact that it's Paul Giamatti makes such a big difference. If it was, if this was in a, not just a lesser actor, but like Paul Giamatti is naturally like, like he's, it's not even that he's likable. I think he's that it's, he's rootable. You want him to succeed because you feel like he's so good at playing a sad sack that we're so used to that. So because I feel like I naturally always feel like he's gotten a bad hand in life and I want to, I want to support him um, or his character rather. And so in this, like, that that works for a while, you know, the introductory scene of him not realizing what city he's in, because um, he's been traveling for work so much that he didn't realize he was on a completely different coast. That's funny. And that immediately kind of puts you into like, oh, man, this poor guy. But he's an asshole. And he becomes a murderer, maybe, depending on how you interpret the actions of the movie. Or is he just someone who made an error in judgment? Oh, there you go. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from the writer of duets, John Byram. After that, we'll hear from producer Kevin Jones. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of the Projection Booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020, I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, 
or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I've always been curious about the short that you co-wrote, uh, Item 72D, but I've never been able to see it. Can you tell me what was it like and how did you become a part of it? Have you ever heard of Hague P. Mnugin? Well, he ran the um, film department at NYU. He was, it was just a class with him. And the big thing at the end of the year, you know, not the end of the year, but deep in the sun, all the people in the class were, they all wrote a script, and then five, four or five of them were chosen he by all by him. And then uh, that guy would direct his own script. Everyone else would be the crew to each one. That's what uh, that item 72 was. I, I wrote it. I gave it, and he chose it as one of the things. And he said, but who, uh, which one of you is Mr. Byram? And I raised my hand and he, uh, he said, well, I don't know anything about you. I've never seen you come to this class. So I, I've got another guy to direct it. So that's what that movie was, you know, but he didn't direct it. He didn't do anything. I, I I've never even seen it. So I, I don't know if his name's on it or I saw it. The last day of shooting, or the next day, the first day of his rough cut, and you know, is what I wrote, and I don't even remember what any of it was, but that was that. I want to say that Manugian also produced a bunch of uh, Scorsese stuff, and then Scorsese wasn't he yeah. in your class? Uh, he was about two years ahead of me. The guy who cut that and went on to cut. Films I've ever shot in um, America knew that guy and was in a class with him. He said he didn't talk about anything but film. He, you can you could see in him. Yeah, I, I never met him, so I don't even know what that meant. But I can understand it. I, I did meet him. I actually I met him when he. What was that first movie he did in that New York thing? Mean Streets. Yeah, he showed to a bunch of guys trying to get into the business one day out in California. And I was there, so I went. And then I talked to him afterwards. There's the only time I ever talked to him. But you could tell he was real smart, smarter than any of us. How did you go from that to writing inserts? 
I was a cab driver in New York before I got really into the business, you know. And one day I was driving, one night I was driving a cab, uh, a guy in the back. We started talking and he said, uh, well, I'm, I want to direct my first movie because I have a bunch of, I can't remember what they were called, but you know, this is in New York in the very early seventies. So it was, it was a pretty low rent town in the movie business. Definitely. It was, well, you're the scholar. You, you probably remember all this and all the people, but I can't remember the guy's name, but he, he I said, well, I'm writing a script. And he said, Oh, I'd like to see it. I need a script. I've got about a $50,000 budget. So I need a really, you know, I'm thinking, and I got a, a friend who has an apartment with a big room in it. So anything you, is your script about anything that could be done that way? And I said, sure. And I went home and wrote it in a couple of days and, uh, I sent it to him and, uh, he said, uh, I can't really shoot anything like that. And it would turn out it was insert. So that was how it began and what its first mistake was. So I went out to LA. To, I said, you know, you've got to go live in LA if you want to be in the film business to myself. So I went out there and I used that to, you know, I, I'd try to get a meeting with somebody or, and that's what I would give them to read. It was sort of like my first script. And it was a couple of years later when I started doing a lot of work. And one day I was in Rome on this movie, uh, Mahogany. The phone rang and it was Clive Parsons and Davina Belling, the two people who had put up development money for Harry and Walter, for example. They said, whatever happened to that inserts thing? Cause I, I we want to get into the business. We want to, produce a movie and maybe we could do that because it seems pretty coverable um and uh, i said yeah it's, it's all in one room and I, yeah it's perfect i said okay you can if you can get it made i'd love to do it i actually directed though and he went okay so i went around and do a couple of studios with this script here's a here's a pretty in, in terms of uh work he's a pretty good at that, you know, and every time he'd go and say, "Well, we can do it for fifty thousand dollars," and they go, "No, nah, it's it's not going to ever get released. We needed to be bigger and bolder." And so he just the next studio he'd give it to, he'd just double the the budget, and he went to two or three studios until he got up to a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, and that was UA. And that's how phone got financed through lies, you know. Claude just made up lies. I'm sure a lot of things get made that version. But anyway, next thing I knew, I was in England making my first movie. Why England? Why was it shot there? I don't know. I, I guess because they lived in England. They weren't working in England. So that's why we were in England, which was really great because I met a lot of different people that I would work with and my career developed. Did you have troubles with the content of the film? Was it censored when it came out? It, well, yeah. As a matter of fact, when it we finally cut together and, and we showed it 
to um, the UA guys, and they said, can you make it any raunchier and dirtier? Because that's what's going to be making money this year. And I said, no, it's what it is. And, and then when it opened, it got X-rated. The, the theaters, X-rated theaters, there weren't that many of them. So that's why no one ever saw that movie because, you know, it was down to maybe three or four showings of it. You had to have an X-rated theater. I'm very curious about your experience on Mahogany because I know that Barry Gordy was involved in it quite heavily. And I've heard a lot of horror stories about working with him. Yeah, I thought he was a good guy. I liked him. Well, maybe that means I'm a horrible guy, too. But he was really interesting. I mean, what he accomplished in his life is kind of interesting. I mean, do you, have you ever studied much about him? I live here in Motown, so he's definitely a huge oh, presence. Oh, right. That's right. Plus, you know, it was Motown stuff. But I I really did it because um, I had I got a phone call one night when I lived in this shabby little apartment in L.A. when I was trying to develop a name. And the phone rang, and it's a guy, he says, well, this is Tony Richardson. I'd love to talk to you about doing a movie. And I didn't know who Tony Richardson was. And then he you know, said I did. What was that fucking that made him put him on the map? Tom Jones. Anyway, that put him back on the map, and he got all kinds of offers, and he... Somebody offered, uh, I, I can't remember how he got involved with Motown because they were a weird pair. He cast it. He hired all of the guys that were going to make it. And he directed it from, I'd say, the first half. And then uh, Billy Gordy fired him because he wanted to be a director. Is really what it was. And he developed the part of we shot in Rome and an English guy directed the part we shot in Chicago. So that's a, once again, that's a weird, some movies are made, you know, getting out from behind the scenes is, it's a good thing, but it can be a bad thing for a guy like you and a guy like me in those days. Yeah. Cause the reality of it, you know what you've been doing long enough to know that everything got made for all kinds of wrong reasons. That's how I knew about Motown. <laughs> but but he was, he was a really uh, interesting guy. Little kind of funny guy, told a lot of jokes. He'd made millions of dollars through records. And he said, eh, I think I'll direct a movie. I'll, I'll direct Diana's next movie. And that's how he put her all together, you know. But to hire, to hire Tony Richardson, who was, was a real egghead kind of guy in English. It just was a weird guys to get behind the thing and get it up and running. What was it like working on uh, Harry and Walter go to New York? I was actually in Rome on Mo- with Motown when it began to come together. And I, so by the time I got back to uh, L.A., I never was on the set. I never went to any meeting about anything. Uh, Mark Raydell, who they hired as the director, fired me my third day and hired his good friend. Well, this is a thing that happens all the time out there. Hired this guy whose name I can't remember. But it's on the 
look at it on your computer, you'll see the name. Uh, he hired him to rewrite it. Was that Robert Kaufman? Yeah, right. Who I never met. So I met Gould once or twice when that m- movie was uh, coming together. You know, just to meet, you're going to meet, you're going to work with this guy and meet each other. It went nowhere. But, you know, it was, I learned so much without ever being on the set of my first movie. I knew so much about, I learned so much about uh, how the business worked, all the backstage bullshit. And, you know, it was, it was fascinating, really. And Rydell was a really loquacious, interesting guy. In the end, I, he just knew for his first two days of knowing me, this kid's going to be fired. And now i got to get the guy who does all my movies or my last movie or something. I can't, I can't remember how you, but that happens a lot too. It's a, you know, more than most people, how difficult the uh, putting a movie to, together and actually making it and having it released is uh, not, it's not a real exciting experience. Yeah, it's very tedious from what I understand. Yeah. Well, there's all of that, too, you know. I don't know. What, but you were drawn into it for some reason. The money comes and goes, you know. If you're using your your head, it's, just, it's kind of weird. You're credited as a lyricist on a song for Cutter's Way. How did that happen? Jack Nietzsche was a really old friend of mine. You know, not, I mean, I, when I was out there, I met him and we just hit it off. And he, he has wound up, he did the score for every movie I've ever made. And, and then when I went into television, he did two or three of the TV, two of the three series I did. He did. So he'd done everything. He's a real, I mean, are you familiar with him or do you, or are you even drawn to knowing about stuff like that? Oh yeah, definitely. And I remember he even had a little cameo in the Whoopi Boys. Yeah, he did. Or down Florida, you know, and he, he was just a real, he was like a really kind of, not that he lived like one, but he, he had a real, it was like a real, intellectual kind of guy. He was always writing music in his head, you know. He just always, he, he in his house, he had set up all this equipment to write scores, he, and that's all he ever did. At four in the morning, it was fascinating. He was great. And then uh, he liked all the, he died. So, but he was really a good guy. You know how you meet where you are. You you probably meet guys that turn out to be lifelong friends. And you can't really think of... That wasn't in either of your minds when you met, you know? And how many people would you add that with? It's another reason to not hang out in the movie business. <laughs> he called me up one day, one day, one night, about 3 a.m., and he said, uh, I, I, I've got a couple scenes in this movie and I need, I needed someone to write lyrics for the score, for the song that we're going to play. And I went, oh, okay. Will you do it? Yeah, okay. So I did it. 
if I walk into that, you know. And then, you know, it was actually a pretty good song, but he decided to sing it himself. So that was the end of that. <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting. You should, if you, uh, you know, the record album, you, you can get a, a, a score of that movie. That song, all of a sudden, all the music kind of turns into, and then I pulled the gun. You know, it's like... It was like you were doing real early seventies when it when it was really bad, you know. But Jack was really interesting guy, really interesting. I some he was in New York for some reason, and I went down and talked to him all day and into the night. The next day he flew home and went right into the hospital and died a couple of days later. It was interesting because it wasn't, and maybe it was in started by a, too much smack but I don't think it was you know, I don't know maybe that's what it was I don't know I never talked to doctors I was, I was out in LA for his funeral which was kind of interesting because uh, you know after his funeral they had a kind of a party in this restaurant in LA for everyone who had gone to the funeral so I said well I'd like to see who shows up there and in walks Phil Spector, which is kind of an interesting you know, that that's that's the kind of stuff that's really interesting about being in that business. Guys, you never even thought you you never even dream of hearing a record by him or something. And he walks. Hey, hi, how are you? Good to meet you. Weird. And then a few months later, he was in prison. <laughs> I'm always curious when it comes to writers, as far as the projects that you may have had a finger in, but then your name isn't on it. Maybe you did a rewrite or a ghost, or even you were the first writer and then they arbitrated you out. Tell me about some of those movies that that your name isn't on that people might want to know that you're that you were involved in. Howard Zeef made. I got I got to be friends with Howard Zeef. For rewriting a script that he didn't do, he's another one of these guys. It's not perfect yet, not perfect yet. So he's shooting a movie, and he'd come over, and he'd say, "All I need is like two days of work from you, you know, something like that." So I did a couple of his movies. I I can't remember which ones, but the one that really sticks out is uh, Ken Russell, who was a friend of mine and he did this movie Rudolph Nureyev with the star. Oh, right. Uh, Valentino. Yeah. Valentino. So I did a couple of scenes for him and they're, they're on the screen stuff. There's, you know, I can remember if I got paid or how I got paid, but it's everything I wrote in that movie. It's really interesting. But you know, you, you start doing so many of them that you, none of it really is shocking because you, you're on to the next, you know. How did you come to write duets? What was your inspiration for that? I was in, uh, Ohio visiting somebody who went to see her parents for the evening once. And I said, well, I don't, what do I, you know, I'm staying in a fucking motel and what am I going to do for laughs? She said, oh, come on, I don't know. And there was a thing on the 
sign out front that said, Wednesday is karaoke night. And I'd heard about karaoke, but I didn't know really what it was. So I just wound up down in a karaoke bar and watching the life of karaoke. It was just, to me, it was I, it was the first time I'd known about this. So I, I got back to L.A. I just sat down and wrote it again in about three days. Once in a while, some story will just wind up in your brain and to, to stop thinking about it every moment. It's just easier to write it. And it was one of those, you know. And then it was, oh God, what is his name? Some guy who had a production company started to try to get it, cut a deal and all that. And I had been hearing it earlier, a few weeks earlier, and I really kind of got these awful headaches and awful kind of couldn't sleep and that kind of stuff. And I said, a couple of doctors, different doctors, uh, I don't know, I don't know what's, what it is, but I don't know what it is. And I was back in LA for another couple of weeks. It got worse. And so I was back here to stay for a month or two. And the first day I was here, I said, I'm going to just see what, I'm just going to go to this Connecticut hospital and just ask if they, I'll tell them what the problem is and ask if, if they know what that is. And I walked in and before I could even talk to them, one of the nurses went, Oh, it's another, uh, Lyme disease. Yeah. Right. And nobody knew about it in Connecticut because nobody had heard of it here at, 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 at that time. And in New York, I mean, uh, LA, every time, every other guy that walked in had it. So I wound up on this. I had the, I had the, uh, had this needle plugged into my, one of my veins and I had to pump medicine into it for like, uh, a month or two every day at uh, noon and every night at 11 o'clock and, and that's your whole life becomes well only a couple more hours before I have to stick a needle in my arm for an hour anyway I, I knew Paltrow for a long time I've known him off and on and he happened to live up here too and so I called him and said do you want to direct this? And he said, yeah, there's a, a thing I want to, um, I just want to make a movie with my daughter because she's a big star now and we can get her made. And that's how that thing, yeah, the next day it was, it was a go picture. I think I read that Brad Pitt was supposed to be in there, in there at one point because they were dating. They were dating and he talked to Bruce a lot in those days on the phone and they his country place up there in Connecticut. He's got like 40 acres ahead because he's dead too now, but Pitt would come and live up there for months on end. And he said, well, we didn't want to change a few things. Got to get, make a bigger part for, uh, my friend, uh, my future son-in-law. And so I rewrote it. Anyway, by the time I finished rewriting it, they had broken up. And he just despised Brad Pitt all of a sudden. And he said, well, all that stuff I told you about Brad Pitt, change it. 
make it smaller. So, you know, it went down that road. And also he had, I don't know if it was him or Gwyneth. I don't, I think it must have been him. He didn't like some of the, you know, it was a real hard drive script. It was his character in, in my initial script, his character and my character meet in a karaoke bar. That night they wind up in bed and they're fucking all night. And then he goes to, she says, I, I want you to meet my uh, mother. And he goes, eh, okay. So she goes, he goes to this trailer park with uh, Gwyneth. And then you find out that they're actually, he's the father of her. And there are a couple of little stories like that. <laughs> That's one thing I really didn't want. And so I started rewriting it again. There seems to be that strangeness still in the film when the I think it's the Huey Lewis character and the Gwyneth Paltrow character are singing to each other and it's just like that's mm-hmm. your daughter you shouldn't be mm-hmm. singing this song to her yeah right I read one draft of the script and the um, Maria Bello character Susie Loomis she right. seems to be much more a part of at least the draft that I read she seems to have a much minor much more minor role in the final film yeah yeah and they had to cut, you know, any women in the film had to be reduced as much as you did do it, you know. And in the end, I've seen Gwyneth in a movie or so or two, and she's okay. And that thing that they gave her the Oscar for, it was, you know, it was okay. To this day, I don't know what the fuck she decided or who she was playing. I mean, it was weird, but that's how that got made, you know. It seems like it took a long time before when you first wrote the script until it finally came out. Yeah. I can't remember exactly why. For Disney to make that movie is weird. You think about it. So, you know, they're all, they're just, that's that one. <laughs> the chemistry, I think, between the um, uh, the Andre Brower character, Reggie Kane, and then the um, yeah. uh, Paul Giamatti character, just incredible. Yeah, and for example, in in the original that I wrote, Giamatti has gotten so strange that what's his name shoots him, kills him, and re- appears to sing for his part of the duet or whatever it is. I mean, it's like that. In fact, I gave that script to um, Ron Howard, and he called me and said, "Are you crazy?" And I said, "Well, I, you know, you can be a little different." And he was really tempted, but he he uh, he said no. Anyway, it was, that was that kind of movie. You know, it was every, as you must know by now, every movie comes together through weird ways. So duets was the last thing that I know that you're credited with, and I was curious, did, did Lyme disease just kick you out of the business? Did you did retire afterwards, or did you still try to get projects off the ground? What I did was Paramount offered me a million bucks to be in the TV business. I said, well, <laughs> so I did that. And then I I had to write and or direct three different TV series for the next year. And by then it was, you know, I didn't particularly want to hang around in L.A. So I had this house in Connecticut and I came back here. And it's an interesting place to write in. 
Yeah, that's one thing. When I speak to writers, they never really retire. They're always still writing. All right. I know you can't not write if you're a writer. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's like a, a, what drugs do to people. Mr. Byram, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. Anyway, have fun with it. Could you get on the phone again? My wife will be joining us. All right, no problem. I'm going to deny everything he said. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to Army Bernstein. <laughs> Army Bernstein, that's who I was trying to think of. He was the He's guy who had his, the first company we had Beacon. Beacon. They, sued. they had a big lawsuit going. Yeah, John had was going to direct it, then got sick with Lyme disease, so he gave it to Bruce Paltrow, and Bruce said, I want to direct it, and, and I can get my daughter in it, and Beacon said, we don't want Paltrow, and it was this big lawsuit, because John said, well, then you can't have the script if you don't want Paltrow. They sued John, because even though they didn't have a, a deal in place, they felt they had a deal verbally or something like that, so he didn't want Paltrow, and it became a lawsuit. That's Hollywood. I am so curious how you got into the business and, 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 and how you got your start. Kind of a funny story there because I dropped out of college after junior year. My family had some financial issues, and I, at that point, was planning on going to law school. So I was an economics major, and I'm just thinking of law school because that was a responsible thing to do. But when in high school, I'd always kind of liked the idea of being a screenwriter. I liked movies. The two things I wanted to do in high school, I either wanted to write movies or I wanted to cut trailers. I love trailers. You can still remember watching the trailer for Sorcerer, and it just kind of, but that's just the greatest trailer in the world. I thought the movie was like pretty good, but the trailer was awesome. I now go to college, my parents are paying for it, and I feel responsibility creeping in. So basically, um, my parents had some financial hardships. I forced to drop out of school. I, I, I'm from LA. So I'm, I was in New Hampshire at the time, so I, I go back home. I'm now trying to find a job. And I finally said, you know, if I'm going to find a job, I might as well try to find a job in something I love. I tried to get a, a movie job, and I started sending out my resume to different studios. I just went through the phone book, got their addresses. I got my resume printed like you used to do in that day. And I just sent it out, and I just started getting rejection letters. So that all kind of just read, you know, thank you for your resume. We have no jobs at the time. We'll keep your resume on file. It was kind of depressing. And then I got one lead for a job through my mother, who had a friend of a friend. And I went in to interview for that job, and that was at a company called The Lad Company. Yeah, they were looking for an office assistant, and I went in and I met, and they, they met me, they liked me, they cut the list down of the possible people from, I think there was the 16 in the beginning, then they made it to eight, then it was four, then it was me and this other guy. And we were the people who were invited to go meet Laddie for the final interview for him to make a decision. And I go in and I have that meeting, and I think I did pretty well. And I come out and I hear nothing. And about two days later, I get a letter. Thank you for your time, but we've chosen another candidate. We'll keep your resume on file. The person they ended up hiring is John Goldwyn, which is kind of the features a little bit later in the overblown story. So I'm so frustrated. I got another rejection letter from MGM, just that cold. And I was so frustrated that I just borrowed the family van, which is all we had, 
drove to MGM, walked into the main building, and just said, I'm here to apply for a job to the, to the guard who's sitting at the front desk. And he kind of looked funny, but he said, you know, let me make a call. And he called Human Resources, and a woman came out and said, since you're here, you can fill out an application, but we have no jobs. I did, and after I filled the application, they said, since you're here, you might want to meet with one of us so we can get an interview and put that with your resume, and we'll keep it all on file. So I go back and sit in the cubicle with this woman, and she starts asking me a couple questions, and her phone rings. And she says, I'm sorry, i got to take this. And she picks up the phone. She talks for about three minutes. When she hangs up, she says, do you know anything about woodworking? And I said, yes, because I had taken a woodshop in seventh grade. And that seemed to be enough for me. And she said, well, can you start tomorrow? And I didn't ask what the job was. I didn't just just, yeah, okay. So she says, show up at the back gate at MCM at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, and you'll find out what you're going to do. But you're going to need a hammer and work boots. So I go home, tell my mom I got a job. I'm 20 at the time, 19. And I need work boots and a hammer, which I don't have. So she takes me to Sears, and we buy work boots and a hammer, and I spend the night in the backyard making my work boots look like they've been used. I'm scuffing them. I'm putting dirt on them. And I show up the next morning at the back while she drops me off, and there's seven other guys that they've hired, and we're waiting for the back gate to open. It does right at seven, and the guy leads us onto the lot, and we walk. We first thing we learn is how to punch in. And we punch in, and he leads us onto a soundstage, and I'm blown away. It's my first time on a soundstage, first time on a lot, first time on a soundstage. And I'm staring at a two-story suburban house built on a platform about 12 to 15 feet high above the, the stage floor, right? So we walk up the kind of the stairway to get to the, the, the first floor of the house. And I have no idea what we're doing. I don't know what I've suggested the job. I have a hammer. I've got work boots. And they walk us through the front door, and the first thing I notice is that the second floor is a bit of a facade. There's stairs going up, and they didn't build out the second story. But we walk past the living room, into the kitchen, and out the back door, and there's a swimming pool. And then you look at the swimming pool, your eyes get used to the light, and you go, well, it's filled with mud, and it's filled with coffins. And the movie turned out to be Poltergeist. And it was the last scene from Poltergeist, and the job that I said yes to was basically, they said, clean up this mess. So technically, my first job in Hollywood was cleaning up the mess of mud and coffins on Poltergeist, which I didn't know what Poltergeist was because they hadn't released the movie. <laughs> I did that, and it, it was a great time at MGM because Sam Peckinpah was there doing Second Unit on a movie called Jinx. Uh, George Kukor was there doing Rich and Famous. Let's see. Uh, Billy Wilder was doing Buddy Buddy. It was kind of like the last of the studio moment. And you would walk on the lot and you see these guys that were like legends and I kind of, I knew the movies and, and you just say hi and they'd say hi to you. <laughs> it's like, this is so cool. Um, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And the reason I started with the, the lad company story is I'm now, I can't feel like I can't continue just being a laborer, pounding nails and sweeping stuff up. I get a call from the lad company saying the guy that we hired, John Goldman, we're promoting him to story editor. Do you want his job? And I said, yes. So I became an office assistant at the Lad Company, and that kind of began this kind of odyssey. Working at the Lad Company was a great experience because it was so small. I got to see how everything kind of worked. You knew the head of distribution because he's in that office. The head of marketing is over here. You know, the head of production is over here. And they're just guys. And Laddie was really accessible. Gareth Wiggins, Jake Hunter. It was just kind of this moment in time that was great. It got more stressful over time. Because of, uh, they made a lot of really interesting movies, but they weren't performing well. Blade Runner, uh, right stuff. Once Upon a Time in America. They were, you know, great projects, but they were stressful projects and they weren't performing. 
I finally decided it's time to go back to college, get finish my degree. So I go back to Hanover, finish my degree, and I'm thinking when I graduate, I'm going to go back and get it and work at the lab company. I know everybody. But senior spring, I get a call, lab company's folding. So it's like, oh, that's a bummer. So I graduate, and I basically, when I get back to L.A., I just go to the building just to say hi to everybody. And they're basically packing up the once great, we used to have two buildings filled with all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. It's now been reduced to half of a top floor of a place. And I walk into the building, and the first person I run into is Paul Mislansky. And he's excited to see me. And all he does is says, come with me. And he grabs me by the arm, and he drags me into a production office that they'd set up for Police Academy 2. And he introduces me to the production manager and the production coordinator and says, he's going to be a PA on this movie. And I was like, I, I didn't even come for a job. I, don't, I wasn't looking for a job. I was trying to rest from being. <laughs> but you can't say no to a job. So I've become a PA at Police Academy 2, which was great fun. Uh, a little stressful, too, because we started with one director, Jim Signorelli, who didn't get along with Paul Mislansky. So there was a, he was replaced probably three weeks into production. And that was kind of awkward because I had to drive people around as part of my job. I, I like to joke that I, I almost made Bobcat Goldthwait because he was in the movie, and before we were greenlit, I would have to pick him up at the airport and drive him to his co- you know, costume fittings and stuff like that. But once we got going, a teamster took over that job, and he ended up marrying that one, the woman who drove him. It was a fun time, and Bernie Pollock was the um, costumer. Bernie Sidney Pollock's brother, and sadly passed away, I think, last he was a great guy. We got along great. And when we wrapped Police Academy, he said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, I, I've always been trying to work in the story department. I like scripts. I like stories. And he said, my ex-girlfriend is a story editor at Warner Brothers. Can I give her your resume? And I said, sure. And sure enough, three weeks later, I get a call from Kimberly Brent, who's a story editor at Warner Brothers. We come in and meet, and they hired me as a story analyst. And so I started reading scripts at Warner Brothers, you know, script and a half a day, you know, Seven scripts a week. I had an office right across from Clint Eastwood's Mal Paso. It was kind of, it was a really cool, funky old shag carpet kind of setup with a desk and a chair. And it was the beginning of the whole computer raised system. So I was then trained how to work a word processing program so that they could move all the coverage from, you know, typed to computer generated. It was a great experience. When I lost the possibility of going back to the lab company, I thought I was kind of bummed, but I realized. It became an opportunity because I knew a lot of people who worked at one company. And when it folded, all those people had to go get jobs. So I suddenly knew one person at a lot of companies. And one of the people who was at the lad company was a woman, Alan Stewart. And uh, she went to Warner Brothers where she's now VP. So when I got the job, we obviously reconnected. So it was really easy to read a script. And if it was hers, I'd just go talk to her about it. I still have to write a coverage. But I, I could wander the halls and hang out with the executives. So I'm having a great time and writing coverage. And then I get a call from... Uh, Mark Canton, who was president of production at the time, and he wants to meet me because he'd like my cover. Basically, he kind of felt like everything, when he did a script and he had a thought of something was right or wrong, he would look at my coverage and, and I would inevitably have said the same thing. So he said, and they called me in the meeting and said, I don't have a job. I just want to know who's writing these coverages. So I go in and I meet him. And I didn't know him at all at the time and didn't realize that he had a very short attention span which he famously does. So I'm sitting there in this kind of interview for the no job, and he's running calls, he's screaming at his assistant about this and that and the other, and every now and then he'd lob a question at me, but he's not really listening to the answer. And I'm thinking, this is the worst you know, meeting in the world, until finally he's just wrapping it up, and he says, just, what's your favorite project here at Warner Brothers? And I said, Forrest Gump, because I had read the script, 
as a book and really thought that it was something that the script needed a lot of work. The book was great. Now and Stewart was the executive on it. So he smiled when I said Forrest Gump and he said, my wife's producing that. Cool. So I get back to my office. He said, thanks for coming in, yada, yada, yada. I get back to my office and I can hear my phone ringing from like, you know, two offices away. I go in, I answer the phone and it's Wendy Feynman saying, I hear you love my movie. Uh, we're, you're going to, you're going to help me with it. And I was like, sure. So she dragged me to meetings with Winston Groom, who wrote the novel, who was writing the first drafts of the script, which is a totally different job than what the reading job is. So I got to move up and kind of experience development. And that led to another job as, a, as an assistant. I got called Amy Pascal, who was working for a producer named Tony Garnett, and she'd gotten her first studio executive job. She was moving to Fox to work for Scott Rudin. And she asked if I wanted to take her place as a development person for Tony, and I said, sure. So I worked for Tony until he decided his family moved back to London. So he was going to close down his office in L.A. And he went back to London. And he, but he said, you know, you, I want to help you out. What are you interested in? And he said, my agent knows that there's an opening at Paramount as a junior executive. And I said, I'd be happy to meet on that. So I go and I meet Ned Tannen, another great person. It was better meeting him with Mark Hanton. We actually got along great. He laughed at every joke I made. He was, he was a great guy. And he basically offers me a job in the room. And I'm now a junior executive at Paramount in 19, 1987. The joke is, when I was sweeping streets, tearing down sets, and cleaning mud at MGM, that was a union job. And I was making good money, and I was working from 7 to 3.30. I, you know, for, for a kid, I was doing great. And every job thereafter, I was kind of going downhill salary-wise, but I was getting closer to my goal. <laughs> now that I'm a junior, I'm an executive at a studio, I'm making less money than I've ever made. They hired three of us, and we would call it an all-you-can-eat job because in those days you had this kind of expense account that basically said you had to take agents, managers, producers, whoever, to breakfast, lunch, and dinner to be part of your networking. And I was the guy with the credit card of like the, our group, so we would just go together with agents, and we would go to restaurants all the time, and it, you know, it was all-you-can-eat, but we were making no money whatsoever. Still fun, and worked on a bunch of movies there, and eventually got called Wendy Feinerman. It's a longer story I won't go into it, but uh, Forrest Gump, Warner Brothers, decided they didn't want to do it anymore because Rain Man had come out, and they thought that the Great Idiot Savant movie had been made, Uh, so they were letting it go, and I basically got the studio to pick it up, so we bought Forrest Gump and started working on it in development there, and based on that, and right around the same time, Sid Gannis, who was my boss that I got to agree to purchase it, had stepped down, and a new person came in, you know, new studio had came in, David Kirkpatrick, and I didn't get along with him at all. And I was depressed. I fell into some, you know, kind of just, I don't like going to work every day. And eventually I just left. But by connect, but at the same time, Mark Canton had left Warner Brothers to go run Columbia with John Peters and Peter Gruber. So he called up and said, you want to come be an executive here? So I moved over to Columbia and I was a senior vice president at Columbia Pictures. And that lasted for about six years, and eventually, uh, part of that process, I was submitted a script called Duets, and tried to buy it with John Byram attached to Direct, and couldn't get it through. I liked the basic premise of doing a karaoke movie, but I just couldn't get the studio to step up to it. There were a lot of different things going on at the time, and it, it went away. And then it came back in another form right around the time I was getting out of Columbia, and it came back with Bruce Paltrow. And he was now attached to direct. John had accepted Bruce as the director. And Bruce had had brought Gwyneth and Brad to the table because they were engaged. Uh, So Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow were going to do duets with Bruce directing. And I got the studio to step up to that as what we would call a negative pickup kind of situation. where we just kind of agree 
that they would couldn't do it for low budget. You'd just go off, but we, I would we would find a way to bring it into the distribution system after the fact while we're kind of just watching what happens. And I'm making that deal, and then all of a sudden that's like sea change at the studio. Uh, Amy Pascal comes back. She had been there. She left. She comes back. All those things going on. I leave, and Bruce says, "You want to come produce this thing with me?" And I felt that made sense to me because. Rather than try to figure out how to get on a big movie where there's so many moving parts, I wouldn't learn anything. I said, this is the right size movie. It's so small, and it's going to go. Because at that point, it was like November, October, November. It's going to start shooting in February. I said, absolutely. So I signed on to be the producer on duets. And I ran into Sid Gannis, who's now also with me at Columbia. He was running marketing there. I ran into him in the commissary, and he still laughs at the story. Because he said, congratulations, you're producing duets. I think that's great. And I said, what's the worst thing that happened, Brad? Did Gwyneth break up? And they did. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as they broke up, uh, the question became whether Brad was going to stick with the project or not. And that became an interesting ordeal because Brad didn't want to do anything to dishonor the bigger relationship he had forged because he was engaged to Bruce's daughter. He had an obligation, but he was brokenhearted. And Bruce could have just said, no, you're going to do the movie. I set this up with you, yada, yada, yada. And Bruce said, I can't hold you to this. I understand your pain. Go with God. And the studio didn't like his response to that. So they put us in turn around 24 hours after he made that call. Back. So then it became a, a year and a half of trying to put the movie back together. The thing that was going to just happen, be small, be this and that and the other. I was suddenly in free fall trying to go, all right, we have to find money to make this movie. I'm going to get a real taste of producing. And that's kind of started. That's the long answer to how did I get in the business? You said that it came to you once before with uh, Byram Attached to Direct. How many years between that and then when it comes back to you with Bruce Paltrow directing? Not years, probably months. Probably not six, more than six months. That's a, you know, an interesting, always Hollywood challenging side story because uh, it was brought, was originally submitted by uh, Alan Rich and Tony Ludwig uh, as, as producers and John Attached to Direct. And as I said, I was interested in the project myself, but I couldn't get the studio to go with it, so we passed. When it came back, with Bruce attached, we had a decision to make whether we were going to then go back and bring Alan and Tony back into it or try to do something else. And the studio made a deal to exclude them because studios tend to do that. <laughs> if we don't need you, we don't really kind of, why are we paying you? We didn't have to include them, but we didn't, and they were obviously upset that we didn't do that. And even more upset when they suddenly realized I was going to end up producing it. So that became a bit of a hitch and a stumble in this process. One of, one of many stumbles. The story behind duets is so fascinating. I love the movie, but the story behind it is almost even more fascinating <laughs> to hear all of the, the machinations to get this finally to the screen. Oh, yeah. Because it, it, it's a challenging, horrific, kind of funny story. Because, as I said, we got put in turn around 24 hours after Brad left the project, and we had to clean out our offices. And we had this lean now attached because they had spent some money for casting, and they phoned us to New York, and they had done some stuff. And actually, that was the moment because we knew that Brad and Gwyneth had broken up, but the world didn't know. And we're still trying to cast this movie, and we fly to New York to meet with some actors. We have Francie Mayfield as a casting director. She's great. And we line up some meetings with actors in New York. But we fly in, we're staying in the hotel, and Bruce's wife, Blythe Danner, uh, had forgotten something. And so we decided to go walk to the neighborhood bodega to pick it up. And we get to the bodega, and just as the New York 
post hits and it's the cover story is it's the pits and it's the breakup story. <laughs> so now the whole world is in on the whole, the challenge, right? What's going to happen to them? Oh, and everybody's calling me saying, Oh, isn't this awful? The America's couple has broken up. And it's like, it became this kind of moment. The interesting version is we look for other financing and there's still interest because we still have Gwyneth and Gwyneth has some marquee value. She's not Gwyneth Paltrow at this point, but she's on her way to being Gwyneth Paltrow. She's somewhere in the middle. Brad was a bigger name at that time, but she's kind of a rising star. So we're getting interest, but we're getting interest not at the studio level. We're getting interest at independent level because that's the size of what we were trying to make. And so we we're going to make it for we had to reduce our budget to get it down to where this next company was willing to finance it. And we did, and we were still working on the script with John cranking out draft after draft after draft and to try to appeal to what the notes we're getting from the financing company. And it looks like we're going to go. And the process usually is the producer gets paid when we start production, which is usually 10 or 12 weeks out from the start date. And we get to that date and they either have to start paying us or something's wrong, they don't pay us, the movie falls apart, they say, oops, we don't have the money we thought we were going to have, we're, we're going to you know, try to put it together in our next package, in our next window, and we're like, we don't want to wait for you for that, we're going to find another home. So we shop it again, we find another independent company, and they say, they'll step up to it, they'll do it, make it right away, but we had to reduce the budget down again, we had to cut another $3 million out, I think, at that point, and we were able to do that. And we're, we're like 13 weeks out and we're thinking we're going to make the movie and we get to that same magic point where they have to pay us or not. And the movie would fall apart right at the same window. So it fell apart, I think, twice, maybe three times in this process. And Bruce is getting more and more cynical at the process. He hates this because he, everybody starts by saying we're making it. And I'm telling him, yeah, they're making it. And it falls apart. So all he's doing is kind of laughing at me. And he has a house in L.A., but he also had a house in Walkabuck, New York. And he would just run to his house in Walkabuck and hang out and just kind of say, Ooh, call me when you have the money. We finally found a friend in a man named Jerry Housefader who was running. Uh, he was kind of doing home video, international home video. And he wanted our movie. And he'd been given the power to try to find some projects to put through the Disney distribution pipeline in an alternative way. And he liked our project, and we I got Bruce to come back to town, and we had meetings with him, and Jerry said, I've got to make this movie happen. It's got to be this budget. And we said, okay. You know, we're still working on a script. We're still trying to cast it because it's an ensemble piece. And we're almost 12, we're 12 weeks out, and Bruce is going, it's going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. And I'm going, no, I've heard from a lot of people they are making this movie. It's going to fall apart. You watch. We're going to the same time every time. And we get through the date. They don't call to say they're not making it. I say, see, Bruce, they're, they're making the movie. And he kind of laughs. And now we start honest pre-production. We're starting to have meetings. And Bruce is one of those punctual guys. I prided himself on being either on time or early. And I was chronically late. And he would be always ever mad at me saying, you just got to learn to be on time. And so we have this big meeting set up. And he's late. And I can't believe it. It's like we got through the window. You gave me nothing but, you know, shit over this whole thing about, you know, they're going to not make the movie. I, we're making the movie. We're having production meetings. And this guy's late. And we're just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. So he finally comes in, and I start making fun of him, right? Because I was like, this is my time. To like, uh -huh. And he gives me a look, and he says, ah, you're, you're going to be sorry. And I'm like, uh-oh, what's up? And probably 15 minutes later, he says he has to go to the bathroom, and I'm thinking something is up. So I literally follow him to the bathroom. I go, well, what's up? And he says, I have cancer. And I was like, uh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and... 
to back it up, because I kind of left this out, I kind of knew something was going on on that front because probably about three weeks before I walked into the office and he's just sitting in the middle of the room and he says, come in here. And I walk in and he grabs my hand. He says, feel this. And he slaps my hand against his neck. And and I'm going, what am I supposed to feel? He goes, you feel that lump? And I I finally felt this kind of module kind of thing. It's like I felt a lump. I either pulled a muscle at the gym or I've got cancer. And I'm like, you idiot, you don't have cancer. It's like, you know, just go get it checked out. But, but why do you have to go through such drama? So now you cut to where, like, a week later, he's got it checked out. He's late for the meeting, and he's like, I've got cancer. And that kind of created the odyssey of the entire rest of the experience. Because Bruce, being a famous person as it relates to Gwyneth, he wants to keep the cancer secret. He doesn't want the world to know. And he really doesn't want the studio to know because he thinks they're going to pull the plug. So then he basically he had throat cancer, and he says they're going to give me radiation. And we we were planning on shooting the movie in Canada. He said, "Well, I'm going to just slip away from the set, do my radiation, and come back, and nobody has to know." And they also have to do surgery. He said, "Well, I'm going to wear a turtleneck, so they're not going to be able to see my neck." I was like, "This doesn't make a lot of sense, but how do you deal with a person with cancer who's trying to figure it out?" And he wants to keep this movie on track. And I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't, but. Also thinking it's certainly keeping his mind focused on things other than life and death. So we just kind of keep moving and not telling the studio that he's got cancer until I can't take it anymore because he's missing meetings and we're having a meeting with a bond company that he's not in because he's in surgery and I'm not allowed to tell anybody this. And it was kind of this crisis moment where I finally just did. I realized as a, as a producer being responsible for the show, I had to I took the Bond guy out to the side and I said, look, I can't talk about it. Bruce wasn't here, not because he's not making the movie. He's not here because there's other personal medical reasons. And I will let you know, you're not on the hook for anything like this second. Just I will give you the information as soon as I can. And the guy understood. And then it became this, now it has to come out. And I have to figure out how to do it. So I called Bruce's lawyer, hoping that you know I can have a conversation with him about how to do this because I've I assume they were very close, Bruce and his lawyer. And I was hoping that his lawyer knew something about it and that we could talk about the practical aspect of it. But as soon as I get the lawyer on the phone, I can hear in his voice, he has no idea what's going on. He has no idea Bruce is in recovery from cancer surgery. He has nothing. So we have this kind of long conversation where I said, this is what's going on. I take it back. It was three or four days after the surgery that this conversation happened with the lawyer because Bruce is now home. And... So I, he said, the lawyer says, well, what should I do? He said, he said well, I, you should call Bruce. And then he said, well, what should I tell him? I don't want to get you in trouble. I said, tell him I told you. I, I, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and he says, okay, I'm going to call Bruce and I'll call you back. So I'm now, I hang up the phone and I'm just sitting there sweating bullets because I'm going to get killed over this, but it just has to happen. And probably about an hour later, the lawyer calls me back and I said, how dead am I? And the lawyer says, well... Let me tell you what happened. I go, okay. He said, well, I called the house, and Gwyneth answered the phone. And she said, oh, my dad doesn't want to talk to you. <laughs> and, <but> she, <laughs> and then she puts him on. And, and the first thing he Bruce says is, I have cancer. <laughs> so I didn't have to be ratted out. <laughs> and, and that, But it began the conversation because the only thing Bruce wanted to know was, how do we deal with the situation vis-a-vis the studio not pulling the plug because of the medical situation. And we did a lot of talking with doctors and everybody, and we came to this conclusion that 
all we had to do, if the doctors would say he's not likely to die during the production window, which all the way through delivery. If it's just normal health and what he's dealing with was a bigger thing over a lifetime, then the theory was that the studio would let the, the movie go ahead. And the doctor said, you know, this kind of cancer could come back in, in X number of years, but he's fine now. So we arranged a big meeting with Bruce and the entire room. It was a huge room of people uh, at Disney uh, with Jerry Hausfeder and the person who oversees physical production, music and other. We have this big powwow uh, put together and I show up. And once again, Bruce is late. The man who's never late. <laughs> and he's 20 minutes late. 30 minutes late. I can't get him on the phone in 40 minutes. I say, oh, God, this is not. <laughs> he finally shows up, and we have this meeting. It's a very stressful meeting where they literally just, all they want to know is, if you die, will Gwyneth walk from the movie? And he's kind of outraged by the whole question. And they literally said, if you got hit by a bus, would she walk from the movie? And Bruce finally just says, I don't know what Gwyneth will do. She will probably, I assume, be in grief. I can't tell you what's going to happen if I got hit by a bus. I'm going to assume I'm not going to get hit by a bus. And then we get to this whole questioning, and they finally start to, you could see that they were more inclined to try to make it happen than not. And that the estimation was right. All we have to do is kind of prove that he wasn't going to die in the production. So we're allowed to go ahead, but we're crazy because the surgery left him with the not a great ability to swallow. So he now has a tube to his stomach that he's eating through. We finished the meeting, and it's like, like the coroner was like 40 minutes late, and guess what happened? He had gotten up for the meeting and went to shave to get ready, and he's shaving, and he sees that he still has, they, when they'd taken out, they, instead of stitches, they did staples. They'd done staples from like behind his ear, down his neck, around his chin, then all the way down close to his chest, and they'd taken the staples out, but he's shaving, and they left, they didn't take out five or six staples. And so in a panic, he drops everything because he didn't want to give them a visual cancer thing. So he drops everything, goes to the doctor so that they can remove those last staples and then come to the meeting. So that was, you know, just another moment in this kind of experience. And then it became based on Bruce's schedule of radiation and a couple other things. And the fact that we hadn't done the prep that we needed to because he was indisposed, we shifted our schedule back. And we had, during the various incarnations of the movie, put the various ensembles together and they would every time that we fall apart we would lose people and have to and every time it came back together we'd have to put together another team of actors the only consistent person was Gwyneth but when the cancer thing happened we had Forrest Whitaker to play the Andre Brower part and we had Paul we had Paul Giamatti and Forrest Whitaker committed and we've given them dates and we felt that we could move our schedule back so long as we protected the dates for Paul and for us, because, you know, they're in, we, we were still figuring out the other people, but we have them. So just push it back. So we used to end with them. We'll start with them because that's the same dates, yada, yada, yada. So Paul called for us as agent, Paul's agent said, this is what's going on. Bruce is dealing with this. We're letting the information go, but we're still making the movie and yada, yada, yada. And the agents basically says, um, completely understand on Bruce's side, yada, yada, yada. The next day I'm in the office and our production manager, line producer comes in and says, I hear Forrest is leaving the movie. And I was like, no, I just talked to the agent last night and she said everything's fine. She understands. And, but he'd gotten a call from another producer saying, you know, is it true? You know, Forrest is going to do our movie, but we need to know X. 
turns out, yes, Forrest basically just said, I'm out of here. I, I, he couldn't take the chance of working in this kind of a weird world where the director had cancer. So he left to do another part. And we're back to square kind of one and a half. Comes back and it, oh, by the way, because <laughs> that was the thing. When Bruce comes out, the movie is so important to Bruce that we finally find a Susie that he likes, Maria Bella. And I'm trying to get the studio to sign off on her, which wasn't like the easy thing, but I knew it could get it to happen. So we're trying to make the Maria Bellows deal. And Bruce comes out of surgery, and I go to visit him like that evening. And the first words out of his mouth to me, did we close Maria's deal? <laughs> it's like, yeah, Bruce, we closed Maria's deal. And it was kind of like that the whole time in this weird kind of sense that he's now gotten really thin because he's eating mostly insure. And he's going through radiation, which is not great. And we now have to start the movie, and we have to start scouting locations. And he's having a bout of stomach issues. And I get this call from Blythe that he's really having a bad stomach issue when we're going to go scout Las Vegas because we shot part of the show in Vegas. And she was saying, does he have to go? And I'm like, well, no, he doesn't have to go, but then we're not going to make the movie. So I guess technically, if he doesn't want to go, it's kind of going to make the movie fall apart. So she kind of understands, doesn't like it. And the reason that she was worried and he was worried is when you do this movie scouts of locations, you typically have many crowds into a van and you drive around and check things out. And it's a crowded van. And, then, you know, we've all been in that van. And he thought that because of the stomach issue and the tube in the stomach was kind of getting out of him, that it would be really painful for him. But he agreed to go because he needed, we needed to move forward and make the movie. We get to Vegas and it turns out we don't have the vans available. And the best that they could give us was a concert tour bus, which turns out great because he no longer had to be cramped in a van. He's now in one of those spacious recliners. And we're driving around Las Vegas to suburbs looking for Todd's house in this big tour bus. So some things kind of worked out fine, but this cancer issue was throughout the whole movie because one of the things is he couldn't be on any set that had smoke. So we're shooting karaoke scenes in karaoke bars, or we've turned it into a karaoke bar. Bottom line is when you're shooting the bar scene, you're going to have use smoke. He would, on those days, direct from his trailer where we had a video feed and only when things, and he would have a walkie talkie so that he could communicate with the actors. But if he had to give the direct notes, he would come in to the room wearing a huge filtered mask. And you didn't want him on the set because you were worried about him. And he's, he's wearing this huge mask and he would come in usually because he's passionately angry about something not working. And he's kind of yelling at you, but it sounds like Darth Vader. Cause it's like, <laughs> so we had a lot of moments like that throughout. Uh, when we finished in Vegas, we started the shoot in Vegas, and at the end of that, he wasn't feeling well, and we got him out, we got him wrapped out early so that he could go back to L.A. and see his doctor to make sure there wasn't a reoccurrence of the cancer, which it wasn't. But he was still in that weird window of feeling if, you, if something is out of line, something it's got to be really wrong. And that kind of environment, that kind of experience, went through the entire production up to this one of the most dramatic moments of the production which we've been shooting night scenes of uh, Andre Broward and Paul driving and driving at night. So we're shooting nights. It was a crazy night. We were shooting south of Vancouver. And we have, you know, basically you've got the picture car all set up and rigged. And you've got two or three vans following. And we're in the first van. And you've got a cop car in the front to leave. And you've got a cop car in the back to hold up the rear. And we would start position one. We'd start the scene. We'd drive, you know, shoot the scene, cut, go back to one, 
and it makes for a long evening, right? So we get there, and all of a sudden, we're waiting to go, and we hear this crash. And it turns out that a drunk driver has rammed into the rear end of our rear police car. So now we're waiting for them to deal with that because the driver has to be arrested, and they got to tow the car, and, we're, and the clock is ticking, and we're going to get that cleaned up. And now we're, an hour later, we go again, let's do it. And we drive, we get the shot, and now we got to turn around to go back to point one. And then starts with the, cop, the lead cop car is making the turn. Another drunk driver almost hits him. So they have to arrest that guy. <laughs> It becomes this really long, long night, and I remember well, this is vivid. Just saying goodnight to him. This, this, cause the thing about a night shoot is it's a hard out because when the sun comes up, it's over, right? I said goodnight to him at dawn, and I go home and just sleep it off. So I wake up around one in the afternoon with my phone ringing, and it's Gwyneth's agent, and he says, "I hear you guys are pulling the plug, but Bruce is not making it." And I was like, no, I just saw him six hours ago. And I said, good night. He was falling. But he said, no, no, I just talked to Gwyneth. And I, 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 I guess Bruce is not going to make it. Uh, he's going to come home. And I'm like, oh, Christ. I basically I do the thing I always do. I call him up and live answers. And I think I talked to Bruce. And she says, yeah. And he, he gets on the phone. And he sounds like, Steph, hello. And I just go, you want to work tomorrow? And he goes, yeah. I go, Okay, bye. <laughs> and he <laughs> he had taken a major turn because going the night is tough on the human body, right? And it, it basically he had hit a wall and collapsed into total exhaustion. And they were all worried about him, but you know he's kind of like on a certain level like a tank, and he was just determined to get back up and finish the movie. There was no no real interruption to the production schedule. It was just the fear of your director, good friend is dying. Other than that, it was like a, a normal movie shoot, but we managed to wrap it up. And, I'm, and I probably shouldn't say this because, it, but it's just, we wrap early because Gwyneth is nominated for an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. And he's go, he wants to get home and he wants to, you know, obviously go to the awards with her and his parents, Bruce's parents are flying in for it. So he wants to get out early so he get cleaned up and get this. He hasn't told his parents he had cancer and gone through surgery. So he wants to get up and get there early so he can cover up the sign so that they don't freak out and worry about him. Because what his point, his thing was, his father had been diagnosed with cancer and was going through issues, and he didn't want his father stressed out over his cancer. So he goes home, and the first thing he does is pull out the tube, this feeding tube, so that he don't want to show any signs of what's that under your shirt. But he's got energy, he's home, they go out, she wins. They party all night. And then guess what? We know what happens when Bruce is out all night. <laughs> so literally next day, he's back to, he may be dying. He's exhausted. He can't get out of bed. And I'm like, you idiot. You couldn't just tell your parents you have cancer. And <laughs> uh, But we got through that one, too. And it was great that Gwyneth won. And, you know, it continued her rise and it was great performance. But then we were now moving into post-production. And post-production was equally challenging because we started to have fights with the studio about the ending. And the studio never, one of the big challenges of financing the movie was the ending because everybody likes an up-ending and our ending certainly wasn't anyone considered an up-ending. So there's been all this pressure every step of the way to change the ending. And we cut the movie together. It was running kind of long and it still had this ending. And we had, we got called into a meeting with Joe Roth who was running Disney at the time. And 
Joe said, look, I want to really embrace this movie. I will give you anything you need. You know, you, you want to go back to Canada. You need another week. You tell me if you will change the ending so that character doesn't die. I mean, so the producer said, like, we got to consider it. The head of the studio is saying this. And so Bruce, we agreed that we were going to think on it. We give it real consideration. He approaches with so much respect about what we've done and, all, and the way he put it. Which was the first time that Bruce actually was open to considering it. And oh, because one of the things we consider, you shoot something, and if you don't like it, we won't use it. We're going to pay for it. We're going to put the whole thing back together, and we will see. And if you don't like it, you know, put it back the way it was. Uh, and that was kind of the icing of the cake to get Bruce to open to consider it. So Bruce flies back to Walkabout to think. And I'm in L.A., and we, we kind of arrange for a conversation, and finally I call him up in the next day, I think, and he says, I thought about it. Uh, I don't want to do it. I said, well, why? And he said uh, he went to a party, and he ran into Joanne Woodward and told her the, what was going on, and she said to him, well, in my experience, we would say, if you don't shoot it, they can't use it. And that was what he said, because well, he basically now was thinking, what if I shoot it and I still don't like it, but they just now decide they fall in love with it and they insist. I don't want to be in that situation. The easiest way to not be in that situation, don't shoot it. So we politely declined the offer and went back to try to finish the movie. That sticking point continued. Joe left the company. We went into free fall. The studio kind of for a brief minute took over the entire picture and we cut it their way. But then they looked at it and they started to panic at what they'd done and called me up and said, look, we're willing to be, we're, we're willing to try to figure this out together and we'll let you come back in and Bruce and you can try to put the movie back together the way it was. And our editor had left at that point. So we have to bring in another editor and we put it back the best we can and we have to humor some of their notes to move it that way. And one of the weird things that happened is now we're going to show the movie to family and friends because we're pretty close to done. We have a screening out in Santa Monica to family and friends. And it was the weirdest thing that the sound was just totally off. That Paul Giamatti, when he goes to the hotel to check in, you can barely hear his dialogue. But when he puts his, slaps his credit card on the desk, on the counter, you hear it like it's an explosion. And something's wrong with the sound. So I call the students, there's something wrong with our sound. And they're like, no, it's just where you showed it, it's bad. Da, da. And I'm like, no, there's something wrong with it. You put it up in another room because <laughs> if you tell me. So they put it up in another room on the lot and they called back and said, oops. That's where we did the final mix. They had done some work in that mixing room and the matrix was off. So the entire print sound was wrong. So we had cut negative. We were done. But we have to now redo the entire sound, which opened the door one more time to try to put a few more things back. <laughs> right? Like, well, since we got to open it, so now we're meeting, we hire a new editor, we're working with basically, instead we cut the whole thing on an avid, but now we're back to the old school of a moviola and a, and a cam. And the funny thing about that, of course, is technology is interesting because when you're sitting there and Jerry Greenberg, who great editor, who was the original editor of the piece, and he's going to say, well, let's try this. And he goes, he pushes a couple buttons and he puts it up and you watch it and you go, okay, oh, yeah, it didn't work. Put it back. And you're trying all these things because technology allows you in real time to do these things. Now that we're back in old school with an editor and the scissors, they, you know, you make a note or two or three suggestions and you leave for lunch. And you come back, and maybe he's got it done. 
right? So you really have to think through what you're asking. You don't just casually say, try this, because it's going to eat up a lot of time. It actually taught me kind of one of the benefits, the bad part of losing that approach is that thinking first is really important to maintaining the uh, story integrity. And when you, because you can get yourself lost by just trying things to try things. But that was the final ultimate hurdle was trying to do the last few cuts based on negative and then get the whole thing ready for release, which we did to the best of our ability under the circumstances, considering the studios kind of waffling about whether they wanted to even release the movie. And then I convinced them to just put up, don't invite us, just screen the movie. We finished with it, just screen it to an audience. And you just tell me based on how it plays the audience, whether you want to do this or not. And they screened it. And then they suddenly came called and said, okay, we'll release it. It, it played well enough. And then we got into the Toronto Film Festival for the premiere, and the studio kind of loved that. So now they're spending money on us again, and we're going to put the whole team together in Toronto to, to have a great time and kind of enjoy. And that premiere was awesome. The audience laughed at every joke. They felt every moment of the experience. It was kind of like the perfect audience. It's like, I, I love Canadian audiences because they, they kind of just enjoyed the movie. And then it was literally... After the screening, and we were driving out to dinner, all of us, and the crowds were out because it's a festival, and everybody's having a good time. It's like, oh, I saw the movie! Da, da, da. It was just a kind of a magical experience. And then we get to the release day, and it comes out, and basically you, you get the call either Friday night or Saturday morning about how your movie's doing. And then we got a call, you know, from, I can't even remember who at this point, Friday night, basically, with the numbers, and it's like, oh, we kind of are dead in the water. <laughs> If you build it, doesn't guarantee people will show up. But that was the end of that whole experience, and Bruce was still alive at that point. And, you know, so it was a very sad, painful moment for both of us, but really for him, having endured all of that. And then, of course, he, the cancer did come back and he died. That's what, long story short. <laughs> man, oh man, what a journey. Oh, yeah. And there's lots of little stupid stories along the way, but yeah, it was... There's some fun stuff, too. The memories that come back for me is like Andre Brower was so into character playing Reggie as I would be walking home back to the hotel in Vancouver late at night, and I would hear maybe a block or so away somebody singing. And it would be Andre just walking home singing. <laughs> and prepping the movie, we had an amazing night where we all went. Gwyneth, Maria, Maya Rudolph, who was our music supervisor in a small part, a group of us and Bruce, we all went to a karaoke bar in LA. And we kind of, and they started, Maya sang a couple of songs, Gwyneth sang a couple of songs, Maria, and we were just part of the crowd. <laughs> and it was a hilarious, fun night. Many of those kinds of things were, you know, the positive part of the process. There was some greatness, but the, 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 the cancer kind of colored the whole, basically, because that was, again, my first producing, producing experience. I supervised production on a bunch of movies. But this is my first in-the-seat producer experience. And I still say, I wouldn't mind trying to produce something where I didn't have to worry about somebody dying all the time. What did the film do for you, if anything? Uh, well, it taught me a lot, right? In terms of what goes into trying to keep a creative vision going while all these people are kind of shooting at you. You don't really get that from the studio point of view, right? Because from the studio point of view, you kind of oversee the bigger picture and you're part of a machine and you're kind of treated a different way. When you're in the seat on the line, kind of dealing it, managing it on a day-to-day -day basis, that apparatus became kind of much more clear seeing it from the other side. So, you know, working, working with Byram on the script in terms of trying to figure out how to keep moving it forward, trying to figure out 
cracking the code for each of the different companies we had to please without losing the vision, trying to not to protect the vision of what Byron initially started, uh, but still kind of hear what the notes were coming from. And every company was slightly different. And every company had a different person they wanted to work on the movie in terms of uh, controlling the budget. So we would hire so-and-so for this company, and then when we left that company, we we like the guy, we want to keep him. The next company says, no, not that person, this person. And they kind of go, oh, is this worth fighting over or not? And the first time they did it, we felt we, we let the person go, and I felt bad about it. And the second time, we, when we brought this other person in who ended up doing the movie, we got to Disney, and they didn't want him. And at that point, we were like, we're not treating people that way. We're not, he, he's done all this work. We're making it with him. Or, and if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Uh, and then they backed down. A lot of learning on that front. After I got done talking with John a couple weeks ago, Corinne sent me over an article from Buzz Magazine in March 1996 were you involved with the project back then when I think it was a company called Beacon Pictures was involved? No. I know Beacon Pictures because Beacon had a deal with Columbia Pictures, right? And that's where they, they were housed. And now that you mention it, I think that Alan and Tony, when they were working with John on the project, they had taken it to Beacon. So that was part of the rich uh, Ludwig version of the project. Wait, what was the memo? What was the... Described as Pulp Fiction set in a karaoke bar, it was quickly deemed a hot script. The folks at Beacon Pictures, a more than respectable production company, thought they had a deal. But then at some point, Byram claimed that he and TV producer Bruce Paltrow controlled the property. Beacon was upset. Enter the lawyers. Beacon's gun for hire were none other than Williams and Connolly, the eminent Washington, D.C. law firm that's representing Bill and Hillary in the tedious Whitewater matter. WNC partner Richard Hoffman did the usual lawyerly thing. He sent a slew of nagging letters stating Beacon's displeasure to Byram's agent, CAA motion picture literary rep John Levin. Such letters can be infuriating, and after reading the umpteenth one from Hoffman, Byram evidently decided he'd had enough. Before long, the following missive came over Hoffman's facts. Hopefully you're not uh, uh, too tender of a subject to hear this. Dear Mr. Hoffman, regarding your letter to my agent, John Levin, about my film duets, suck my dick. You send me one more fucking letter and I'll rape your wife, slaughter your children, and kick out every tooth in your head, you miserable little dickless dweeb. Sincerely, John Byram. Sounds like John. Well, but that that is a reflection of when we got involved. We Columbia resolved that problem with Beacon, because Columbia had a relationship. (laughs) So that was the beginning of trying to just make it for the studio with Brad and Gwyneth and John and Bruce, and they obviously, as I said, with even Rich Ludwig's, you know, they we, I I suddenly was was shunned because I I I was part of doing this. It got, it did get heated, but the studio was able to resolve that with Beacon, and the result was the studio now controls the project, Beacon's out of it, and so is Rich Ludwig, and that you mentioned that particular. That I think when you read it, it's like, yeah, I think I was aware of it at the time. <laughs> I was like, I, 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 oh yeah, I guess that did happen. <laughs> Byron was a, was a loose cannon, right? He's he's a crazy genius. He's a, he's he's, he's Byron. <laughs> there was many a story with him. Ultimately, were you happy with the project that came out? Yeah, well, if you put that much time and energy and emotion into a, into a piece, you know, you, you, you never get perspective on it, right? And I have always, one, the one thing 
face emotionally about working in this business is every project that I've worked on, when I watch them again, it doesn't happen that often because I don't see what I liked about it. I see flaws that I, I wish I could have corrected. So I, I, I kind of, every time I look at a picture that I was involved in, it, I call it the flinch factor. Like, oh yeah, I remember that. I couldn't get, <laughs> oh yeah, we didn't do that that day. Or, oh, oh, it rained. Or, oh, it, this thing happened. Or I, I couldn't get a note addressed in time. Or, so it's a, I'm a proud parent of this wonderful piece that is flawed. But I, I, I work in Forest Company. I was like, I'm proud to be involved in that. I see the flaws. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. At some point, trying to have perspective on it, and this goes back to just trying to shop it. When you're dealing with an ensemble piece like duets, and there's three separate stories, I kind of describe it as, I called it the hala experience, where you make three strands of bread dough, and you weave them together, and you put it in the oven, and magically, when you slice into it, it's one loaf. And when you're trying to tell an ensemble story that has three separate stories, you're trying to get the hala effect. That all these stories in the convergence that's going to happen is going to give a greater meaning to the whole. And that was something we wrestled with through the entire development and production experience of trying to find a way to get that to happen. So when I talk about the flinch factor and the flaws for duets, I can kind of see where the lines didn't quite blend into one loaf. And I also, when I look at it, I can see where Bruce was really strong in directing the beginning. We kept the schedule, so we worked with Andre and Paul first. And then we worked with uh, Marie and Scott. Then we worked with Huey and Gwyneth. And then we worked with Marie and Scott. And I can kind of see Bruce getting tired. And that kind of also contributed to the not finding the ways of getting it to blend. Because in the beginning of the experience, if you had a note and you threw it out at Bruce, he would go, yeah, 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 let's, let's try that. Or, or, what about this? But by the middle and towards the end of the experience, he didn't want to say anything because he was just so focused and on a line that it wasn't worth upsetting the apple cart. We were kind of close enough and the train was running. So, you know, so, so that's a long-winded way of saying, I actually love duets. It, it, it's so much a part of my life that it, it, it occupies a huge section of my brain. But I, when you ask me to go back to it, it's like, I see all the challenges. The movie itself, I love the music. I love some of the choices that we made. I love Paul Giamatti's performance is awesome. Uh, everybody's performance is good, but Paul kind of brought something to the table. And that was the thing that taught me a lot, a moment, because in the development process and for changing for different companies, we went to, I can't tell you how many drafts for different people. And when you read a script over and over and over and over again, you, you, when you're reading a script, you see it a certain way in your head. You have a voice in your head as you're reading it in terms of dialogue and whatever. And we're shooting Paul's scene where he's going to go out for the cigarettes. And it was a very long day, a very, very long day for a very stupid reason, which was another side lesson, which is when Paul's called, when Paul pulls up at his house and there's a garage door opens and he can't find a place to park because the first, there's a car and then he opens another door and there's another car. We picked the house on that day that we went out with the bus and we show up to shoot it and nobody thought to put a controller on the to control the rate the door goes up. This is from you just push the button, the door goes up. But now you got to coordinate it to Paul's movement, and we're trying to time it with, you know, just the generic, push it now. Not a good movie thing to do. <laughs> you need more control than that. So we spent countless hours trying to get it timed right and never got it perfect. And guess what? Didn't even make the movie. But when we finish the outside, we move inside on this very long day. 
we do the scene, which is called, uh, you know, going to offer cigarettes. And he's doing the dialogue and work with an actor. The interesting thing about that process is when they first start, they usually they haven't internalized it. They're just giving it to you from memory. And then you get a couple takes in and now it's starting to be internalized. And I'm listening to it and you can hear it. You know, he's still finding his way. He's still finding his way. And then all of a sudden, he does a reading um, at the end of a very long day that is exactly the performance that I heard in my head every time I read the script. So for me, that's a signal. Time to move on. We got it. But Bruce is still pushing forward on this very long day. I know we got to do it again. And I'm like, but I, you know, he did a good job. And this was a moment where I, I'll give him credit because we did it two more times. And the second time, Paul did it in a way that I'd never heard it in my head before, but it was all real. It's only way I can describe it. It was like, well, the same line. It was like, didn't change anything other than the way he presented it. And it was like, wow, there's a whole nother place for that. And it, it kind of taught me this idea that if you had enough time to try to get every moment like that, where it's not just what you expect, but something unexpected, that is greatness. And that's kind of the thing we chase is trying to find those moments. And then a lot of people will never even notice that moment because they never had a version in their head before. So when you're sitting there and you're going, wow, that's just amazing. And just watching Paul work was amazing. Watching him do the pre-records for the song or watching him figure out how to do the duet that they do on stage. That whole experience, it, it was magical, right? He just had to, to be there. It was kind of a, wonderful. Or watching Gwyneth, another thing that I, I noticed is Gwyneth was amazingly, is amazingly talented. From my point of view, the way I could say that is we were shooting a scene with Gwyneth and Huey and we're trying to get the camera set up right and we do a take and Bruce doesn't like the way she's delivering something, but Gwyneth is talking to Huey about some other thing in between takes and then she's having a conversation. She's kind of treating him like dad, not director. So Bruce would say, Gwyneth, could you do da da da? And she's like, yeah, yeah, right, okay. And she's back to her conversation, and I'm like, okay, this is kind of awkward. Then we go to these, we get set up, we do the next take, and she's in picking the note, internalized it, and put it back to her, and like, she heard him? <laughs> she not only heard him, <laughs> she did it, it's better, and then she goes back to her conversation. It was like, okay. <laughs> there was a lot of golden moments in that crazy experience. It had to be tough for you to find not only people that can act super well, but then also that can sing, because I would never have picked Paul Giamatti to be the singer that he is. Right? No idea. I'm trying to make it feel authentic, right? Because he is the average Joe going out, and he's a confident actor, and he's just embraced that part of him. Andre, we needed a, a better voice than any we thought anybody as an actor could have. Uh, we played with the idea of Andre doing his own singing, and he did a lot of singing, but we also had Andre Mc Arnold McCullough, who did, who was um, James Taylor's, um, one of his, in his vocal group, and he had, has a kind of angelic voice, so we kind of played with sounds and to embellish, because Reggie has this kind of voice from heaven. Uh, but Paul, you know, 100% authentically, he just found that character, and that's how that character sings. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> that works. And Maria, because by, by the way, cause you have to pick songs, because we had to change some songs based on people's vocal ranges, which I never thought about when you're just working on the script, right? So we had um, Total Eclipse of the Heart. We wanted Susie to sing, and she didn't have the range for it. So we had to find a song that was closer to her range. And Gwyneth was supposed to sing. Um, she had a song that she used to, her father's thing, and it was originally going to be 
um, these boots are made for walking. Yeah. Uh, the the storyline was, you know, essentially that was the song her father used to always sing to her when she was a kid, yada, yada, yada. Well, Gwyneth decided she liked the idea of doing a duet with Cruisin, and that, and that kind of came to pass. So finding the right song. Oh, and by the way, you know, the inside baseball part, the difference between working for a studio and working independently is you take a song and then if you call up to find out how much it's going to cost to license it for a movie and your, and your phone number is a studio number, you get a quote like, oh, that's going to cost you $150,000. And if you, when you're in independent and you have no money and you're making the same movie and you call the same place and say, well, how much is the same song? They say $15,000, literally. And it was just a different phone number. <laughs> Because the, one of the challenges of getting the movie made and people nervous is we, they didn't think we could afford the music budget because they were, if you went to a studio, they plugged in 150000 for all the songs, for each song, and we had a lot of songs. They were like, we're like a $4 million music budget. We can't afford this. This is an indie movie. But Dick Rudolph, who was our music supervisor with his daughter Maya, which was great, Dick had gone to school with Bruce. So they were friends forever, and Maya had grown up with Gwyneth, so getting the both of them was great, and he manages, was managing a song catalog, which gave us access to a lot of the songs, and we were able to make deals that actually kind of fit what we, what we need, our, our budget. But I still really just came back to me, there was a moment where, because Bruce is not a big contemporary song profile, to be honest. And so we're trying to find these songs that have resonance and would have universal appeal. And, and, and Bruce would say things like, it's got to be a song that everybody knows. And Dick would play a song that we're all in the room going, everybody knows the song. But Bruce would say, no, everybody should know this song. Why are you playing me this song? Bruce, everybody knows this song. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> so that, it, made, it made for many a fun meeting. He learned, he learned to lean on Maya and Dick. In order to, you know, if they gave him the reassurance that these, these, these songs are known. And you, you've seen the movie, right? I mean, there's no song in there that people don't know. <laughs> Actually, as we get, as we get older in the new generations, maybe this is changing. But, you know, those are, most, we use classic songs. And everyone was a little bit of a battle. Because I, I think one of the battles, another lesson for me, I've always kind of been this way, but there was a moment when I mentioned cruising. And that was Gwyneth's idea. I was talking to Gwyneth when she first floated the idea. And I had said, oh, I'm open to that. That's, that's interesting. You know, you're talking to an actress about her character and how she sees it. And she's talking, you know, talking about her love for this particular song. I'm like, okay. So she, I didn't get a phone call from Bruce, and he's angry. And he's like, Dick totally sold me down the river. And what happened? He talked to Gwyneth, and she now wants to not do Boots and Made for Walk, and she wants to do Cruising, and I don't know why he said that. And he's going on about Dick. He shouldn't have said that. He said that. And he finally pauses just enough to go, Bruce, wait, Dick didn't do that. I did that. And he goes, you did? You did? I go, yeah, I, I did that. Goes, uh, okay. Cruiser was Maya Rudolph's idea. That didn't come until very late, because that was the song we couldn't figure out. It's got to be here. Got to do all these things, da, 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 da. and we tried a billion different songs. Wasn't couldn't figure out is it a religious hymn? Is it this? Is it that? And I can't re I remember the day, but Maya came in one day and just said, "What about Freebird?" I was like, and then, that might have been one of the ones that Dick, that Bruce might have said, "Everybody's got to have heard of it." I'm like everybody has heard of it, <laughs> but the, the joke is, of course, that it's true. Not everybody's heard of it because when we did a pre-record with Arnold McCullough where he's singing it, right? And he's done all these, he's performed with James Taylor, right, all over the world. And he finally, he goes, 
Well, now I know what the song is because every time you know we do a concert, they're inevitably are yelling "Freebird, play Freebird." He's like, he, he he never even bothered to figure out what the song was because it's like we opened his eyes to Freebird. But it is a kind of a magical song, by the way. I think, and, and I never realized it would be that until we did it. So I, I, I take my hat off to Maya. That moment is always so completely stunning, and that it's all done a cappella is wonderful. And the a cappella was always there because that was always the story beat. Right, because we have to break down, we have to get back to the au naturel, that all this made up stuff that made up it, and try to, that authentic moment was going to change everything that's going on in that room with all those characters and trans, allow them to transcend. But when you basically say, that's the story beat, now what's the song? You can imagine what kind of pressure it's like, no, not that one, no, that won't do it, no, that, and you have to eventually pick something and play. You know, it's like if you write a script that says, and then the painter painted the greatest work of art they've ever done, if it's a movie, at some point you got to show the painting, and if the audience doesn't agree, it doesn't matter what was written, right? So you if you if you fall in that huge paranoia. <laughs> but we were pretty confident that we had the right song as, as soon as my aesthetic. I was because we to basically think about it. But yeah, if you just look at the, think of the words. On the other hand, we had issues with the. Uh, I don't even remember Reggie when we meet him is singing a song in a prison shower. And we ultimately decided that he probably shouldn't be singing a song like I'm Easy, like a Sunday morning or something. But we had all, you know, because you kept worrying about people taking, make, accidentally making a joke that wasn't intended based on circumstance. Right. So you had that paranoia, too. And then you then you had the licensing fee. Can we afford it? And and by the way, because it's kind of a side note to that whole budget thing is we've been squeezed to death, right, to get the budget to like, you know, just about $10 million dollars. I think we came in this other, by the way, which was a lot, not a lot of money back then, and a fortune if you're trying to make a movie today, independently. There was another thing that always sticks in my head is we had to really make good deals on all the songs in the movie, but by the time we were finished with the movie, and we're talking about marketing, the idea of Gwyneth doing a duet with um, Babyface came up, and the studio said, I'm in this meeting. The, the studio exec says, so how much is it, would it cost to, to do this? And I think somebody said, well, it's going to be like $200,000. I was waiting for everybody to say, that's crazy. And they go, no, let's do it. It's like, I just finished fighting over a $15,000 song and you guys give me a hard time. And this comes up and it's like, 200000 no problem. Like, I, I've changed universes. And then I think on the take is I, on the same day, I was, I was working on another movie in post-production about the music issues of a thing called Love and Sex. Uh, with uh, John Favreau and Pamela Jensen, and I was having a, a, a conversation with the director about licensing a song for three hundred dollars for that movie because that was a million dollar movie. So I literally go from a, a conversation about three hundred dollar song to a two hundred thousand dollar song in the space of a couple of hours, and like the movie business is crazy. <laughs> I'm gonna call it my big takeaway is the movie business is crazy. Yeah, how did they end up marketing duets? Because was the karaoke thing, was that over by that time? Or, or what did they try to play into that? Studio didn't spend a lot of time marketing it. That's kind of because Joe left and it was a movie without a father, without a parent. So they kind of just, one of the reasons why it didn't work, outside of the fact that I do think it's harder to sell a movie with that with challenging endings. But if you don't try, you know it's not going to work. So yes, we went with the karaoke angle and the karaoke thing had um, the funny thing it, 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 I was going to say it's run, run its course but it hadn't quite, it was still there it was still fairly popular, it wasn't at the peak of it, and of course it disappeared and then it came back, I laughed because my sister like uh, two years ago I, wa- I was watching the her house and 
she's got a karaoke machine, and every night before she goes to bed, she sings karaoke. It's like, and by the way, when we did the karaoke technology, our karaoke setups were they were huge, and now you can buy a microphone that has a hundred, you know, thousand songs on it, <laughs> and it's like you don't need a big setup for it. It's like, wow, okay, that makes it easier. And I spent many a night in a karaoke bar doing research. And some amazing kind of observations in that experience. Because one of my favorites was um, there was a karaoke bar called Amagi Sushi, which was a big one in LA. And I was in there. I just go there probably once a week to just see what's going on. Two women. One woman that clearly brought her friend. They were both worked at Denny's because they were wearing their Denny's uniform, right? And they come after work, and it was clear that the one loved karaoke was trying to get the other one to try it. And the one that loved it was tall and thin and had a nice figure and she, but she had an okay voice and she sang and people are kind of, inevitably you start by watching the person on stage and eventually when you realize what, what they're bringing, you kind of either tune out or you kind of just watch with appreciation that they're so open and she does it for song and then she tries to get her friend to do it. She doesn't want to do it, doesn't want to do it. And then three other people do it. Then finally her friend who's totally opposite in shape and look, he gets up, and people were not paying attention to her because she's kind of the quiet type. She opens her mouth and she sings like an angel. <laughs> and every head in the room just suddenly turns to the stage and watches this kind of thing happen where she comes out of her shell and you're just mesmerized by, she's an amazing singer. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the capper is, I, you know, she's like the shy person in the beginning. I go back to that place maybe four months, three months later. And now she's completely out of her shell. She's owning the place. <laughs> and it was a total karaoke transformation. What happens to you after Love and Sex and Duets come out? I'm still working with Bruce on a couple projects. I'm trying to get, he had written a script about um, the kind of wrestles with um, a person in the age range in their 50s whose kids have grown up and they are wrestling with the medical thing and they go off and try to reinvent their life. And it was a really good script that I'm now trying to help put the money together for that. And we're talking about a TV show, um, possibly trying to launch something like that. I am also working as a manager at that point, a literary manager, but I'm partnered with people who are managing Alicia, Alicia Silverstone. So I'm working with her and trying to help put projects together for her. And I put Alicia's team together with Bruce because this is the time when she's trying to get into television, right? We put together uh, what I thought was a great lunch. Uh, Bruce put it together with Jenji Cohen and um, Alicia's primary manager and me, and we had Nate Nels in L.A. and talking, trying to figure out how to get Jenji to bring Alicia into something that she's doing. And that, you know, it, it heated up for a moment, then it kind of faded away. So I'm doing a lot of stuff like that. And then I had some personal issues with my wife's mother who was having um, the big battle with Alzheimer's, and that became a big issue for me. And it distracted me from producing. And I kind of always felt duets took me away from my daughter because we shot in Canada. So and my daughter at that point was um, five. I didn't like being away from her at that point. So I was really kind of determined to find something more stable than this kind of crazy thing. So I started teaching. And I started teaching at AFI. And then I started, you know, I wasn't teaching at AFI to teaching at where I am now, North Carolina School of the Arts. And I realized that I would never had to talk about why I made the decisions that I make. You kind of just you react a lot and you operate by instinct a lot until somebody says, well, why did this happen? And then you go, if I have to put it into words, the first thing you go, I don't know how to put it in words. And then you start going, oh, now I can put it into words. And as soon as I turn them into words of explaining what I do, I thought, that's why I did that. And it gives you kind of <laughs> it gives you clarity. 
So I really started to enjoy this teaching thing because it's like, wow, I'm getting to know me while I'm teaching you. <laughs> so that's been a joy. And then so I ended up working at AFI for a bunch of years as the head of pieces production. I was um, creative, so I helped them develop their screenplays. And we, and they were, uh, don't take credit for it, but the period I was there, the, the students won a bunch of Student Academy Awards and one even got nominated for an Oscar. So I, I felt like I was really doing something and telling a story whether you're doing a student film or a studio film or a little indie like Love and Special Duets, it's the same muscle. If you enjoy that muscle, it's the exact same muscle. You have to enjoy puzzles. You have to, you have to enjoy the challenge of never really knowing, but it's kind of what I do. It's what I enjoy. So I did AFI for about six years until I was offered a chance to start a master a MFA program here for creative producing to try to take that belief in Steve. I can't find people who share that and help them find their way. So we've been in, I think I've graduated, we've graduated three classes so far. We've been around four, five years now, four years. And uh, we're building. You grew up in L.A. How is it for you being in North Carolina now? I love it on a lot of levels. Well, right, when, when you say right now, you, you have to talk about COVID, which is another story. But before COVID and when I was making the decision to come here, I'd been here briefly uh, in 2010 and 2011 just but that's like a movie. We go on those, it was like other location. Uh, so I've lived my whole life in Los Angeles, except for the time I spent in college and the time I spent on, on locations. Right? My home address was always an LA address. And this is the first time I'm now in my 50s that I'm going to be like, all my friends in LA are usually from someplace else. They've done the big move. And I was telling people, I've never done it. I've never experienced this idea of living in an entirely different place. So I packed everything up that I own. And moved it out here and said, I'm relocating to the, and it's been great because LA's weather is getting on my nerves. When I grew, growing up and, and talk about climate change for me, it used to rain in LA. It used to rain in LA a fair amount. Not, not like it was in a, uh, it wasn't like a Pacific Northwest, but winters would be raining, it'd be snowing. Uh, you'd see the white mountains behind in the, behind the hills and it was, it gave me joy. Uh, I love weather, but then, over the last 10 years or so I was there, it was pretty much the same every day. If it rained, it rained for half a second and it would be gone for four months. And obviously we reported about all the drought that was going on. And, you know, living through that, it was just kind of, it was kind of that gray, dull day. And here, the place is green and alive and a thunderstorm comes in and it'll shake that place. And, and I, I, you know, lightning will flash out the window and it'll snow once or twice a year. The leaves will turn. I thoroughly enjoy it. It, it. I feel more alive in that experience. But that said, I still spend my summers in LA because my family's there. I like to think I get the best of both worlds. Well, Mr. Jones, thank you so much for your time. This has been just so great talking with you. It's been a pleasure, Mike. I guess I, guess I wanted to go back. Something's wrong There's something here Doesn't last too long Maybe I shouldn't think of you as mine All right, we are back and we are talking about duets and uh, it's kind of funny uh, I think in the interview he tells me a little bit about how 
originally Ricky and Liv were going to sleep together. And then after the phone call, I can't remember if, if his wife Karen got on the phone with me or if she emailed me separately. Oh, no, I heard it. It's her definitely shouting in the background saying like, no, no, that didn't happen. Well, she says it didn't happen, and then I'm listening to the commentary, and Kevin Jones is like, well, originally they were going to sleep together. (laughs) (laughs) And the script is so dark, even the 98 script, I'm just like, I bet they slept together. I'm pretty sure they slept together. The way Liv is written in that script is just, not just that she's kind of written as this sex object that everybody that looks at gets gets an instant boner. But also that, like, she really is into her dad. She wants her dad. And that's the thing that never sort of made any sense to me, because you imagine any other story about a character who knows that their parent just drifted, just walked away from them as a child and is now back in their life. There's rejection. Think of any number of films, not that I can name any at the moment, but she not only has no hint of rejection, she's got thoughts of lust. It makes no sense. Allow me to point you towards an episode of the um, longest running drama currently on television, Law & Order SVU. Uh, one of my favorite, like, what the fuck episodes, there's one with James Vanderbeek of Dawson's Creek, where he plays a man who um, keeps finding young women and seducing them um, under the guise that he is their long lost father, that they didn't realize that their father isn't their father. And he's he pretends that no, 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 I am really your father. And they fall in love and have sex. And he does this with like four women. And they all get mad when they find out not that like, you know, he was, he's an abuser, but that he wasn't their father. And then the psychiatrist comes on and gives this whole speech about like, there is apparently a, whatever you want to call it, complex, I guess. And the way the show treats it is that there there are some, especially for, I guess, women to fathers that, oh yeah, if they're cut off at a certain point in life, their sexual energy gets directed there or something. It's really weird. I don't think it's a thing, but a lot of movies seem to think it's a thing because I guess there's a whole genre of, of uh, filmmaking where people enjoy it. I don't get it, but hey. So I got to ask you, Mike, he doesn't have your email anymore, does he? Uh, he still does, yes. Oh, my God. And he's going to listen to this episode? Maybe. Okay. Oh, gosh. Don't send him Emily or my emails. Just please. Just <laughs> Don't worry. I don't think we've come down hard on this movie. I think everything that we've said has been apropos. I mean, it's not like we're... I'm not making fun of this movie. I still like this movie a lot. It's interesting to see where the flaws are and what could have happened. But, um, yeah, I, I still dig it. I, I think I like it more than you guys do, but I can totally understand why you don't because it does have these flaws and it is not everybody's cup of tea either. I'd be a liar if I said I wasn't entertained because I was. And maybe if I wasn't watching it for the projection booth, I might have thought, well, that was a nice way to spend you know, an hour and a half or however long it went for. And certainly for the Marion Seldes scene and the whole relationship between Andre Brower and um, Paul Giamatti, I know I keep mentioning this, that alone I absolutely loved. And if the film had been purely about them, it would have been, I don't know, maybe uh, like a a multi-return watch film for me. So, it wasn't like it wasn't entertaining. There were details that were wrong, but it was entertaining. I think for me, I really like 
films of this type in that films that are ambitious and weird and really flawed, because I think there's something really interesting to watching a movie like this and saying they didn't take the easy way out. This could have easily been turned into more mainstream. You could have focused on um, a romance. You could have, you know, turned uh, Andre Brower into a cuddly teddy bear who reforms at the end of this movie. And like, there's a lot of choices they could have made that they didn't, which I find really interesting because it makes it a less sellable movie, right? This, this could have been PG 13 and marketed very broadly. It's not a broad movie. It's very weird. It seems really um, intent on, telling these very offbeat relationships and exploring them, I think the biggest problem to me is that it doesn't have the time to do it in a way that makes sense. Either expand and add another 45 minutes to your movie or cut out one or two pairs and make it like, I don't know, make it a trilogy. But it it doesn't dig deep enough into any of the three stories for me to be satisfied but I appreciate how how odd it is and how hard it tries. And I do think everybody's good in it. I think the soundtrack's fantastic, and I will probably download some of these songs. And everybody is giving a good, interesting performance. And that includes Paltrow. I, I mean, I, I don't I don't understand what she's doing, but I think she's really watchable. And like at this point in her career, she was and I, I don't know that she knew what what her thing was she kind of ends up in parts that you think somebody else would have played this completely differently. And I don't know that I like it, but it's, I I can't picture anybody else giving the same performance, which I think is interesting in itself. I also like the soundtrack a lot. I am surprised by how good some of these people can sing. It's just, this is a little unfair because not only are you like thinking Maria Bello, not only are you gorgeous, a wonderful actress, but also you can sing. It's like, come on, for God's sakes. And apparently she was such a huge fan of this uh, karaoke that she actually bought a karaoke machine herself and sings at home. And I mean, it's it's true of like most actors have probably sung a lot in their life because when you're, you know, in high school acting, you probably do musical theater. So a lot, it doesn't never surprises me when I find out an actor can sing because I kind of think to myself like, oh yeah, they of course they would have figured that out when they were younger. And if you take enough vocal classes, even if you're not going into musical theater, most actors, if you're seriously studying acting, you're going to study voice. And that doesn't mean singing, but it does mean knowing what you can and can't do with your voice and you know what what different pitches and volumes are. But the way from from what I understand, I guess Gwyneth Paltrow had, had sung a lot. Huey Lewis obviously is a singer, but that Paul Giamatti and Maria Bello were both in the same camp of really not having been singers. And Paul Giamatti, I think, was like, at first, like, oh, maybe you should dub me. And they're like, no, no, just kind of, it seems like it was kind of the way the movie goes, where they're like, no, no, just try it. Let's hear it. And he does it. And everybody's like, whoa, you can actually really sing, <laughs> which is great. What a great thing to discover when you're a movie star. And then you get some fucker like Hugh Jackman that can do all that and dance oh, at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> I know that's somebody too. I have seen him. um, I saw a boy from Oz on Broadway and it it was luminous. And I I've seen him like in part, like in New York one day I saw, I went to, they were doing like an outdoor screening of the Muppet movie and he was there with his kids and you just saw him like online for free popcorn. And I swear the sun like only shone on him. Like he was, there was this golden orb around him that was sparkling and blinding people. It was quite an experience. 
the one that gets me is when he was being interviewed and he recognized the interviewer as being somebody that he had taught when he was a, a grade school teacher. You're getting an award tonight for contribution yeah. to uh, film and stage. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that? And what do you I think feel you- good. But Rollo, I'm sorry, man. We go way back. I used to teach you at high school in PE and I want to know how your physical education is progressing. It's very important to me. <laughs> you guys don't know that, but this man here... <laughs> yes, I used to teach you at Uppingham School in London. Yes, that's right. Oh, no! How is your education going? Oh, it's going great. Did I set you up for life? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I run. Anyway, yeah. back to the festival. <laughs> Fuck you, Hugh Jackman. How dare you be so nice? Right. <laughs> Give me a scandal, dude. People can't be perfect. I know. Two other things I wanted to point out. One, this is a fun timestamp movie in terms of female fashion. Which is always true of anything made between like ninety three and two thousand and three is that you forget like certain things that were very apparent in like things that we tried a lot in the nineties included like spaghetti straps all the time. Uh, and if you look at like Maya Rudolph's hair when like she has a really small part as a as a, the hostess at the karaoke event, and she has like it's the short hair but with a lot of. Um, like you make a crown out of your own hair type thing. Big thing we did back in the 90s. Appreciate seeing that represented. Just takes me back. The thing I really like that we have duets that aren't romantic. Uh, it always makes me think of uh, when you have sibling figure skating pairs or, or ice dance teams. Where um, remember listening to an interview about this in figure skating of somebody asking a brother or sister figure skating team. So how do you like... You're skating together and isn't like supposed to be romantic. Isn't that weird when you're skating with your brother to tell a romantic story? They said, well, actually, we don't have to. That's kind of the beauty of what we do. Every other figure skating team, their routines are always a romance because that's what you expect. But we can't do that. So we have to find different ways of doing it. And it made me think of this movie where you have, you know, songs where you have Andre Brower and Paul Giamatti singing a duet that is not a love song to each other, but it brings something else out of a song that I think is really cool. And as much as like, yes, the duet between Huey Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow, it's a little weird because there is a weird sexual overtone to it. But when you're watching it, it's also very like, no, she's singing to her dad. And that's different. And I, I like that. And again, I wish, I wish I could have had more of that in the movie somehow, but there's just too much plot going on to be able to give me more music that I would have taken. Well, I'm just glad that they did cruising instead of sexual healing, because that would have just been really <laughs> wrong. Some sort of Lords of Acid song would have also probably been a bad choice. <laughs> Spank My Booty is oh. the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and we're going to take one more break and play a preview for next week's show. From the director of No Way Out. Trust or betrayal. This is about creating enemies where there aren't any. Passion or deception. Either way, I should just trust you. Yeah. Corruption or conspiracy. Give a half million bucks to a man you don't even know? The answers are hidden in white sands. Starts Friday, April 24th at a theater near you. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at white sands. As far as I know... There's no theme next month, but we'll have to see if we can find one. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Emily and Morris. Morris, what is happening in your part of the world, sir? Planning the next couple of podcasts. So I think in a couple of weeks, Bernie 
has picked a film, or rather his friend from a podcast called The Iron Sequel Podcast is joining us. He's picked a film called The Stoned Age from 1994, uh, a film about stoners looking to get laid over the course of a night. I'm just wondering how much of this is a dazed and confused ripoff, but I'll find out in due course. Uh, we have an interview lined up. Uh, this should be really interesting with the curator, I think, of a – well, it's now – a streaming service that started out as a music festival. It's called Doc and Roll. All they show is music-centric films. So, I mean, that's not part of our raison d'etre, is it? So, uh, but we thought we'd speak to them anyway. Um, and on, um, on the Love That Album podcast, I have a fellow first-timer called Joe Lavelle, who is part of the All-Time Top 10 podcast gang and we discovered a mutual love not just of the monkeys but of mike nesmith's solo work so we're going to be talking about mike nesmith's first national band uh, and their debut album magnetic south that should be uh, out sometime in february so looking forward to that i will tell you that the stoned age was very much sold as a dazed and confused half-baked kind of stoner movie uh-huh. but i Remember, it had a lot of heart, and okay. um, hopefully you will like it. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it, because I hate hanging shit on a film on a podcast, as you know. <laughs> but yes, that'll be uh, yeah, a couple of weeks. Looking forward to um, any conversation about film is a good conversation, I think. And Emily, I am so glad you survived Christmas. Did I? I feel like I'm stuck in a snow globe still. For the listeners at home, Emily does a how many days of Christmas? I mean, because it, it just seemed to go on and on. So it de- it always varies. It depends on how much energy I, I have. Um, I do so. The feminine critique is my podcast, and normally I record it with Christine Makepeace, who's been on the show before. She was just on your Poltergeist episode, and we usually talk about obviously movies, often movies directed by women. Um, but come every December, I've been doing it for the past six years. You know we put up the garland and the Christmas tree and I cover Hallmark, uh, Netflix, uh, Lifetime made for TV Christmas movies. And I go through them with a, with a list of the tropes that you, you know, tend to find in them. And it takes a lot out. This year I did 14 episodes, uh, three solos and the other, um, 11 were all with special guest stars, including yourself, Mike White. Uh, Mike came on to talk about Dolly Parton's Christmas on the square the musical. I don't know why you didn't cover that on the projection booth for musical month. You're warming me up. Oh yes, oh yes. Um, so yes, I, I survived. Um, I also something that I, cool that I got to do was one of the movies we covered, uh, a New York Christmas wedding, which was a Netflix release this year. Uh, it turns out as I'm watching it that I, I had a connection to the movie that my brother knew the director, um, and the director listened to our episode and I thought, oh shit, <laughs> what, what, what did you hear on this episode? But he, he was into it and we did an interview with him. So that was an interview with Atoje Abbott. Uh, so that is all on the feminine critique feed. You can listen to all of those things and come another week or two and Christine will be back and order will be restored once again and we'll cover movies that people that listen to the projection booth actually want to hear us talk about. Oh man, I can't believe you did 14 movies. I did 14, yeah. Um, I did both A Puppy for Christmas and The Twelve Pups of Christmas. Oh, oh God. Totally different movies, if you can believe it. Well, thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? For I must be traveling on now. Cause there's too many places I've yet to see. For if I stay here with you now, things just couldn't be the same. Cause I'm as free as a bird now, and this bird you cannot change. Oh, and this bird you cannot change. Lord knows I can change. Lord knows I can change. To get wearied Wearing that same old shaggy dress Yeah, yeah, yeah But when she gets weary She gets weary Try a little
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.